When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following is a member of the Burke Reviews podcast family. BurkeReviews.com. Hey everybody, welcome to Bloody Awesome Movie Podcast. I'm your host, John Burke, with my uh, co-host. It's Matt, all the way from England, and from what I watched tonight. How you doing, John? Pretty well, sir. How are you doing this day? Very good. I've had a long weekend, because I've taken a few days off work, um, solely for the reason to go and watch films. I caught a couple on Friday, um, and tomorrow is beginning of the week for me, so I'm going to catch a couple more tomorrow. So, um, yeah, in term- if there was a dream, I'm, <laughs> I'm certainly living it. But how about yourself? <laughs> Um, not a long weekend, actually. This weekend feels rather short. I've been super busy, but um, I've gotten a lot done, and I'm pretty pretty stoked about that kind of thing. You did pick a weird weekend to take off for movies because there wasn't much coming out uh, the week. This is uh, we're recording this December second, so there wasn't a whole lot of stuff that came to the theater. But I guess you, you caught some of them anyways, huh? Yeah. Well, part of the reason was I have so much annual leave or holiday vacation time to use, mm. which I kind of. I, and we're coming up to the end of the year, so I kind of had to use it somewhere. So I'm Got taking it. the end of the week off or the beginning of the week off so I can uh, catch, with the, catch the latest releases when they come out. But yeah, this uh, this weekend was a quite quite a quiet weekend, I think, yeah. worldwide. Yeah, it, there was not a lot of movies, I think, worth our money or time that came out this weekend. But mm. um, there's a lot of indie things out there, just too far for me to make it. But I, did, I got up on some Netflix movies that I've been trying to get to and... Um, couple of screeners that i was given that i i a lot of times um we get emailed a bunch of stuff and i i ignore a lot of the screeners that are sent to me because i'm just like i know i'm not going to enjoy that and i'm not trying to write a billion bad reviews like that's not my mm-hmm. goal like i'm not trying to put down other artists but i can look at something and, and generally make a judgment call if it's going to be in my wheelhouse or not you know yeah yeah and um this documentary i got of uh, the rebound i immediately knew was in my wheelhouse and I was so right. It was it was a pleasant surprise. Um, very very happy that I I did opt to watch that screener. But um, just in case listeners, if you have not uh, listened to Bloody Awesome Movie Podcast before, Matt and I uh, we are transatlantic buddies. Um, you know I'm in Florida, he's in the UK, and but together we make it work. We do. We we have to. <laughs> Matt Matt sacrifices far more than I because we're always recording very late on uh, on his schedule. Um, but I guess if we were going to do it mine, I'd have to get up at like 4 a.m. to record. So um, yeah. It's not too bad tonight. It's 9 o'clock over here in the, after- in the evening, which is quite, which is just fine. Yeah, this is more of a reasonable uh, time. It's 4 o'clock for me. Um, but we watch a bunch of movies every month, and we both write reviews for our respective websites, mindburkreviews.com, Matt's whatiwatchanight.co.uk. And we get together at the end of every month, and we look back, and we talk about the four major releases that we saw, and then we kind of power through all the other movies from this month that we watched um, at the end of the podcast. But we go in pretty deep, but spoiler-free, 
as we uh, go from movie to movie to movie, um, covering the four big releases that we've we've deemed the four big releases of the month. Um, and I think this month looks pretty solid uh, going into it, but we won't know till the end of the show if if that proves true or not. Yeah, December's got an awful lot of big movies coming out, which we're going to talk about next month. But for November, it, it I found it hard to firstly nail down the four major releases because there's the four we've picked are you know we'll, we'll get into those but there's a bucket load of the kind of best of the rest or worst of the rest if you will that we could go on for hours there's so many films that came out this month major films that um the four we've picked i'm certainly going to enjoy talking about but i'm also looking forward to what you know the other films we've got to talk about but yeah uh, the four films i'm very much looking forward to diving into them yeah and that's um, the thing that I've noticed uh, this month was, for the most part, I would say a lot of the movies were kind of underwhelming. Um, a lot of I saw a lot of movies this month, but I wasn't um, as over the top with some of them as I was really hoping to to be. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were a couple of surprises, so at least there's there's always those that are um, that kind of make the month worthwhile, kind of thing. Always the king at creating tension and atmosphere going forward. Indeed, sir. Indeed. Um. I, I guess we get started with our first film for the month. Let's do it. Rock uh, on. All right. Indeed. Uh, that is the perfect choice. And of course, um, probably where podcasting, uh, for me, the inspiration to be a podcaster started was the basement of Wayne and Garth from Wayne's World. Because I grew up uh, overly loving those movies um, and that Saturday Night Live sketch. And I'll never forget the first time I ever heard Bohemian Rhapsody as a kid was in Wayne's World. And we saw my bill the murph mobile um and that whole sequence the i think that was the first time i ever tried headbanging you know i'm I'm like i don't know eight years old or ten years old when wayne's world comes out and i'm just like i was garth for halloween sir at that age oh wow i i have pictures i will find it and send it to you um i'm garth for life yeah you know um (laughs) bohemian rhapsody is the film that we're going to talk about first uh directed by brian singer although um he didn't finish directing from my understanding someone else did come in and finish up fletcher came in there you go Someone's done his research. Um, <laughs> uh, the film stars Rami Malek, Lucy Boynton, um, Gilliam Lee, Ben Hardy, uh, Joseph Mazzello, and uh, you got to mention Aidan Gillen and Alan Leach as well. Um, There's some other characters that show up. I won't. We don't spoil things, so some are going to have to remain nameless. Um, mm-hmm. But the film chronicles uh, Queen. Really, it is heavily through Freddie Mercury, but it's really about the band and. Um, the the movie was loved by fans from what I've seen. Like, uh, IMDb has a hundred and thirty two thousand user ratings, and it's an eight point four out of ten. Wow. Um, but on Metacritic, it's sitting at a forty nine, so just like in the middle for critics. Um, I am on the high side. I loved this movie. I had a great time. My whole my wife and daughter went with me, uh, which doesn't happen very often with my wife. She's not a big movie goer. Um, but uh, she she loves Queen, and we all went. We all had a blast. Um, I thought Rami Malek was a revelation, and I could just watch the last fifteen minutes of the movie over and over again in a, in a loop because I just thought it was so excellent, um, so so cool to see. And then uh, the level of detail that the filmmakers went in to recreate this iconic concert is insane, especially Malek's performance through it. Um, you know, he just owns the screen. The only thing that bothered me with Malik, and it wasn't him, but the the fake teeth they put in his mouth felt like fake teeth in his mouth to yeah. me, and that was driving me crazy. Like kind of throughout the movie, is like I'm like it's so obvious those are not his real teeth. Like it's so 
blatantly obvious that he has like you know caps in or a, it almost like you know those like fake teeth that kids would get like the bubba teeth like they were all like busted up yeah. and it would make your mouth kind of bulge out that was noticeable to me with with malik's mouth but otherwise i loved this movie i thought it was excellent i can't wait to own it um you know i've been listening to queen almost non-stop since i saw this movie like it kind of revitalized a fandom that i i had but didn't even realize because i gotta i'll be honest matt i knew all the songs in the movie but i didn't know all of them were queen songs <laughs> Um, really? Yeah, because there's some that I've heard like throughout, you know, movies and uh, commercials or whatever, and had just they they sound different than Queen, which of course that's partly because they all write, you know, that's something that I was not familiar with. In a lot of bands, the singer writes and that's it. And Queen, I think having that diverse group of people and their diverse backgrounds, um, or at least somewhat diverse backgrounds, you know, the, the even where they were going to college for and things like that, you got these kind of unique songs that topics change and the the style changes even from song to song so sometimes they're not as recognizable like i knew the the big core ones were queen but there was a few that like i guess they're all still core queen songs but there were some that i was like wow i didn't realize that was a queen song like i knew that song but no clue it was queen yeah i i was lucky enough to to be brought up on mainly just my brother and my dad on things like bon jovi guns and roses good old status quo uh and queen Queen was one of the bands I was brought up on. It. My dad was always playing them back home in Woking, and I've so I've known about them for since I was you know knee high to a grasshopper. And I've always liked Queen. They're always a band which doesn't it doesn't matter what I'm what kind of genre I'm feeling at the time. If a Queen song comes on the radio or my iPod, I listen to it. Whether that's the later stuff like the show must go on or that kind of earlier pure sort of kind of uh, Sid Barrett rock, all the sort of stuff like Hammer to Fall and in the middle. I love Queen. And I was worried about the, what I was worried about this film. I was thinking, what, what, just what happens if it isn't very good? Because I took, because this has been going on for ages. We had um, Sasha mm. Baron Cohen was meant yep. to do his version. And we had countless other people were meant to be doing this. And I was more worried about what, just what happens if I come out, I just don't like it. But thankfully I didn't. I had a really good time with this. The you mentioned that last fifteen minutes, the live that yeah, that last fifteen minute section is easily in my top five moments of this year from any film. Mm-hmm. I just sat there with goosebumps. The way it's all recreated, yeah. the sound design was spot on. The the graphics have been criticised. I liked them. In yeah. terms of Rami Malek, he was a revelation. Like you mentioned, he was magnificent. They did give his because Freddie Mercury had that prominent overbite. They gave his overbite an overbite, but I liked him. He looked more at ease in Freddie Mercury's later life within the film when he took the wig off, basically. But mm-hmm. I liked this. Gwilym Lee looked so much like Brian May. It was as a young man, it was freakish. Uh, a few things didn't work fully for me. Lucy Boynton, who was so good at Sing Street and the Black Coat's daughter, and she was recently in a possible. Apostle, sorry, and murder on the Orient Express. I would have liked to see more from her, and certain liberties were taken with the story and the true life account, blah, blah. But I I actually would have liked to have seen a little bit more time added to the runtime, just so they could have just patched it out just a little bit more, because certain things did feel like they were glossed over too much. But, yeah, and you mentioned Brian Singer. Dexter Fletcher did come in, and you wouldn't. I don't think you'd notice that there was two tones two directors it was one vision if, if you want a queen pun mm. to this uh so i like the fact that they could come in hand the baton over and 
it was seamless to me. But there were a few issues with the film. But when I came out, I was just, you know, I was, I had the We Were Rock You beat in my head. I yeah. felt like I was a champion. And just hearing those opening piano bars of Bohemian Rhapsody, anybody who watches this film and says that that isn't awesome, I will I will contest that to the, to the, to the end of my days. Yeah, I, I, I didn't have the... Um, I also am a big fan of Lucy Boynton because of Sing Street. I do mm-hmm. think she wasn't in the movie a lot, but I liked what she did in the film. Oh, yeah, um, yeah agreed. Um, and then uh, Aiden, Aiden Gillen, um, also from Sing Street, actually, which I thought was kind of a cool connection. Oh, yeah. um, I, I like him in almost everything. And while he's, again, he's not in this a lot, I liked him when he was on screen. Um, I really do think the a lot of complaints that I've heard is that they wanted more of the the Freddie Mercury story. I do think this is about Queen, and it is about like making them like elevating them to almost like godlike status. That these yeah. their it's their mythology, it's their mythos, and I like that. It, it, to me, it was like watching the development of a Greek god, like someone deciding how do we make Zeus Zeus? You know, how do we make him something that people will will look up to the heavens and. and I don't want to say worship. I'm not encouraging them. I'm not saying they're saying we should worship queen, but I am saying that from the level of music, the brilliance that was there, this is about honoring a band in a way that maybe, maybe there is something like that they've been forgotten or they've been overlooked. And again, I'm an example of who they would be targeting with that because I knew the songs, but didn't know where, the, didn't know where all of them came from. You know I mean? I like, I knew where Bohemian Rhapsody and I knew we were Rocky and we are the champions um, I knew another one bites the dust only because of another one rides the bus because I'm a big Weird Al fan. But there's like, um, you're my best friend. Like I knew that song, didn't okay. know that was a Queen song. You know, uh, no, yeah, there's, there's so many. I mean, if you just listen to their greatest hits, I mean, they got mm-hmm. a three CD greatest hits collection, and you could just you could just put that on, and that would that would do you for Queen. I mean, that's not to say that the rest of their songs and the album tracks aren't great because they are, but their greatest hits rivals. Or it's up there with just any other band's greatest hits for me. And the problem with a band like Queen, just on your point there, is because Freddie Mercury was, you know, in essence, this kind of larger-than-life character in terms of a frontman, it, it, it was hard for the writers, I think, to kind of balance having a Queen story and, the, and, and Freddie Mercury, that one overshadowing the other. And at times I felt like they didn't quite get that balance right. It felt mm. too much like it was leaning towards Freddie Mercury, You're which right. is fine because I'm a big fan of Freddie Mercury and his vocals and I, his charisma as a front man. But then they, but then they kind of, th- it looked like they thought, ah, quick, we've got, we've got to veer this back into band territory. You're right. And that I noticed that kind of inconsistency within the writing. It did again. These aren't things which made me think oh, I hate this film and I never want to watch it. It's just things I noticed just because I'm such a fan of the music and the artists. I think Roger. Um, Roger Taylor's a bit of a so and so, but um, in later life, but I that they're the things I noticed. But again, when I when I uh, when that last fifteen minutes kicked in, and when I left the theatre, I wasn't thinking about those. I was thinking about the the music I've just heard and the emotions I felt and the goosebumps I still had on my arm from just just watching a magnificent band on the big screen finally. And there were flaws here, there were flaws there. Fine, but at the core was such a brilliant performance from Rami Malek and the the music lives on and the question for you is Oscar season coming up chances for this film I'm specifically looking at Rami Malek Ooh, um, I definitely think Malek will get I hope he gets a nomination for best actor um, I would I would be very surprised for a best, a best picture nomination 
Um, and since it's not original music, they're probably out of that. But yeah. maybe best editing, um, best sound costuming, design. sound design, um, sound mixing, maybe. Um, yeah. And I, I could see uh, costuming because, I mean, they had to recreate, you know, decades worth of queen costumes you know like cause the you iconic see costumes i can't exactly like people are i mean maybe that makes it less impressive because like you had something to look at to create it it's not crafting from scratch but like they had to make us feel like we were there and that these were the real band and i thought they did a really good job with that and i do want to mention too um that this hopefully this film breathes life back into tim from jurassic park's acting career that's joseph <laughs> yeah. mazzello because I don't know that he's been in anything else since Jurassic Park. I mean, I could obviously click a button and look, but it feels like... Oh, I guess he was in The Social Network and G.I. Joe Retaliation, which I'm sure everybody saw. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, so I really liked him in this. I mean, he's he he looks like he's aware of the fact that he's in a movie about Queen, though. I don't know if that was the bass player's M.O., but, like, there are, like, he has, like, little sly smiles and stuff that almost seems like he's with us more so than he's with the band. Like, he's, like... I'm I'm in a Queen movie, and you're like, yes, you are. Um, <laughs> to be fair, Joe, uh, John Deacon, the bass player, he was very much like that. He's with now that Queen have gone back on tour with Adam Lambert and um, what's it, the dude from Free, whose name I can't remember now. But John Deacon didn't want to rejoin the band for his own reasons, which pretty much equated to he didn't think it was Queen without you know all of the original members together. So John Deacon was always that kind of every man within the band, if you will. But um. I yeah, like Joe Mazzello hasn't done too much <laughs> since Jurassic Park. But it was actually John who told me who it was because he, after the film, we kind of said what we thought about it. And then he said, did you recognise the bass player? And I thought, no, no. I know who he was in terms of his real life, you know, John Deacon, but I don't know who it was. And he told me it's a little kid from Jurassic Park and it bent my head for the rest of the evening. Yeah, I was so, like, thrilled. Um, I was like, oh, my God. Because um, Jurassic Park's in my top five movies of all time, like, personal favourites. And uh, so... It, Granted, like, that kid has gotten on my nerves in the past as well. You know, like, he's he's supposed to. You know, he's an annoying young kid who's a know-it-all. He gets on your nerves. But I still, like, I like seeing um, actors get, you know, like, he, he seems to have had a fairly normal life, which doesn't always happen for children actors. So that's refreshing that he's like, hey, look, you're a functional adult. Good for you. you know? <laughs> and he's still been in two, if not at least two huge films. One, Jurassic Park, obviously, has endured whether Bohemian Rhapsody does is another story, but he can still claim to be in those films, which isn't a bad calling card. No, not at all. And I, I thought he was really good in, in as uh, the bass player. I, I am a bass player, so I'm always, yes. I'm always kind of paying attention to bass players, and I, I liked him in it. I love the bass line for Another One Bites the Dust, and I like that whole recording session. Um, and that I love the recording sessions in this movie a lot, and I love their their humor that they interject, like the the rooster crowing and then it cuts to him singing the high part for bohemian rhapsody like i love those little things like that these just like moments of humor um and there is a one one sequence that i've heard mixed comments on uh, i can't say because it would be a spoiler mm -hmm. to some degree but i liked the 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 scene it's a cameo um i liked it yeah 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 but a lot of people were not thrilled about it so i've you know i've heard mixed things but it it's a cameo me. that gives a sly nod to uh, something bigger that yes. came before. But, um, yeah, I I think it worked in the context of the film. I yeah. think for me, it, yeah, I can I... see why people would have issues with it. But it, it, it was a nice break. And, it, again, it had, a, it had that humour, which sometimes 
with a band like Queen, because again, their reputation over here, at least anyway, is that Brian May and uh, Roger Taylor are kind of flogging the band now. I know that there's so many fans around the world who disagree with that, but the, the consensus I've heard uh, is that it's, yeah, they are too insular now and they've, they've got very too, you know, self-referential and blah, blah. So to see the kind of early days when everyone was just having fun in that scene, whatever people think about it and whether its roots came from, I, I liked it in the context of the film. Me too. I agree. Um, and I wonder if that, if the person who, who does the cameo wasn't there, but that scene was still there, like they had just cast somebody else or whatever, if people would still have the same objections to that sequence. Good point. Um, and I, I don't think they would. I think it is simply because of the, the humor that maybe didn't work for them or they thought was too on the nose or whatever. But I don't know. I liked it. And that we'll leave it at that. Um, yeah. Overall, Matt and I both liked Bohemian Rhapsody. I liked it. I think... I was more forgiving, maybe, but I also don't have the the big connection like you have, um, or the back knowledge. Like to me, this was my entry point into knowing more about Queen than I've ever known in my life. Where I feel like for you, this was more like a list of: Did you talk about this? No. Did you talk about this? And not in an insulting way, but like you were already that kind of fan. I could do that with other things and have done that with other things, uh, including A Star Is Born from last month because I watched the the fifty six yeah. version. And I was like, oh, they didn't do this, 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 and I like these things, and now they're not here, and I don't like it. So, you know, it, well, it was a guy that. who came out of my screening who's even worse. He was, he came oh. out, and I was walking behind him, and he's saying, well, this didn't happen, and this didn't happen, and actually, what he said at this point was this, and he yeah. he didn't wear, he didn't, the stilettos were an inch too short. He was really getting into wow. the minutiae, and I thought, you, <laughs> well, keep yeah. walking, keep going, because whilst I, whilst I noticed a few things that. Skewed the history somewhat, which I did kind of think. I see why they did it cinematically, what it brought to the story. But two of the bands were produced it, and yet there's changing their own story. I did think was a bit not bad, but I just thought it was slightly odd. But I get, I could see why they did it for the you know the cinematic punch. But this mm. other guy, he's on another level. But no, yeah. yeah, I would agree with that assessment. I wasn't, you know, I didn't dislike the moments which I, which I picked up on, but I just happened to pick up on him during the film and before we completely transition away from bohemian rhapsody i do want to give a nod to my favorite director uh, edgar wright for introducing me to two of my uh queen songs that i love a whole lot especially brighton rock from uh, baby driver uh which was not a song that featured in bohemian rhapsody or is on their greatest hits but i do think is a worthy song to listen to and i yes. would not have if it were not for Edgar Wright. So. What's the other one? I'm intrigued now. Um, in Shaun of the Dead, the uh, the jukebox sequence is uh, Don't Stop Us Now, um, yeah. I believe. I'm it is sure. Don't Stop Me Now, which is their kind of, which is, well, it's, it's, that's one of their very famous songs. Yes. It's one of those kind of upbeat party songs now. I love that song. And there's a, um, a fan cut trailer of the new Super Smash Brothers with that song. Nice. And it is so spot on. Like, it is like the best thing. Um, it's so great. Uh, so if you want to check that out, look that up on YouTube, unless it's been taken down for copyright violations. But um, I think that leads into our next film that you'll be introducing. The next film is a well, another one of the bigger releases of, of the year, mainly based on nostalgia. But it's Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald. Grindelwald, Grindelwald, depending on how you say it, whether you're Jude Law or Johnny Depp, there's different <laughs> ways to say it. But Grindelwald. Directed by uh, ongoing Potter saga Helmer David Yates, starring Eddie Redmayne, Catherine Waterston, Dan Fogler, Johnny Depp, Jude Law, and a boatload of other stars. Um, I opposed to the majority of the English-speaking world and the film critic world. I quite enjoyed this. Now, 
I I put a big asterisk on that because it was chock full of flaws, inconsistencies, canon contradictions. But overall, I enjoyed it. I came out and I was entertained by it. It's the second part, obviously, from Fantastic from Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. And it finds uh, Grindelwald has escaped from his custody. And Eddie Redmayne has basically been asked, sorry, Newt Scamander slash Eddie Redmayne has been asked to go and track him down uh, before he can recruit more of the wizarding world to join his rebellion against the nomads slash muggles. Um, it raises more questions than answers because there's so many storylines going on concurrently, as well as the mythology and the world building and the connective tissue between this saga and the original Potter saga, which J.K. Rowling originally said wouldn't be prevalent, but now it's you know the, it's the key issue of it. Um, I like Eddie Redmayne. I think he was more composed this time. Johnny Agreed. Depp was the best part of the film for me. Separate the art from the artist, because I know it's got a lot of uh, controversy, the fact that he's in the film, but I thought he was the best part, just like Colin Farrell was in the original film, previous film. Jude Law is as reliable as you expect. Uh, on my second viewing of the film, because I did have to watch it twice, I noticed more and more of the classic Dumbledore in his performance, which I didn't necessarily notice the first time. Um, Catherine Waterston is really dealt a bad hand. She's relegated to a supporting character here. Zoe Kravitz is great. Esma Miller is very good. Dan Fogler gets the biggest arc here. There's a re- the return to Hogwarts, which you see in the trailer, was a pleasure, especially with that theme ringing through the auditorium. Mm-hmm. There's fewer beasts, which kind of makes me wonder how many how much prominence the beasts themselves are going to have in their own saga. And I mean that seriously as well. I mean, going forward with what was set out in this film, yeah. is there actually going to be a place for the beasts? This film's darker than the first one. They still have those kind of fun Wizarding World moments, but they are, they are in short supply. This film is a lot darker, and there's some moments which I didn't I didn't like, but it's put it put out there. I didn't feel they were justified, and I thought they were too much, and I went with uh, my young stepdaughter to this film, and... She got very upset at a couple of the scenes, not because they were scary, but because of what they were depicting. So that was something which I'd worried about before. And as I'd mentioned to John and um, mm-hmm. my co-host on podcast as well. But on, on the whole, though, that in saying that, I didn't dislike this film. The bits that worked worked for me. I liked it. I'm not going to go into any kind of what happens in the film. We all know that there's something major happens because that, you know, every, before the film comes out, everyone says, ah, oh, there's a twist. It's a it's a, sat, it's a shattering twist. How on earth they're going to play it up in the next three films? Don't ask me. But the fact that they've got three films to try and just, um, explain it works in their favour. But J.K. Rowling has got a heck of a lot to answer for. Uh, and also the Nifflers are in this film. And anybody who knows me yeah. knows that the Nifflers are my favourite thing, possibly cinematically since the Porks came out. I want one. <laughs> but um, yeah, for, so for me, against the grain, because I know this film's not received an awful lot of love worldwide uh, I mean just have to look at the, the Rotten Tomato score 39% for a film set in the Harry Potter Wizarding World is mm-hmm. ugh, it's struggling to hit 500 million worldwide but I enjoyed it I enjoyed being in this world I liked what it gave me in terms of what it where it went what it did right and I could see the flaws in it but the fact that I've mentioned that, like I said, there's three more films to come, which still is a stretch, but there's still yeah. three more films to come. That's part of the reason why I'm willing to give it a bit more leeway because it's got plenty of time to explain what's, what it's set up, even though it has to obviously then fill those stories. But for me, I it was above average for me. I quite enjoyed this. Well, 
Um, before I get into my thoughts, I do want to just to clarify something. Uh, you are a fan of the Porgs, then? Ah, absolutely. Me and my uh, two and a half year old, we are Porg, we're Porg uh, fanatics. I am too, sir, and that is why Who's... we podcast together because we have weird Porg connections pumps. like that. We don't agree on everything. In fact, we don't agree on this movie. In fact, since I saw it, I think I've soured on this film more. And partly is I have a luxury that I am training the next generation of film critics, essentially. Not trying to, but I have students who are latching on to the criticism side of film. Some latch on to production, some just latch on to appreciating film more as an art than they ever did before. But then I have others who have really embraced the criticism side. Mm. And I teach movie etiquette, something I think we've talked about on some of the other podcasts we do together. And one of those things is to not use your phone, give the movie 100% of your attention. And during uh, a screening of Crimes of Grindelwald, my student started texting me how much they hated it and that they were considering walking out because they were so upset (laughs) by how bad it was. And And this is a student who adheres to the movie etiquette, but she was so... She needed to tell me how much she hated it during the movie. Um, and I was like, wow. And then another student who is a film, uh, uh, who runs an Instagram account that does film criticism. Um, she's a huge Harry Potter fan and liked uh, the first Fantastic Beast quite a bit. More importantly, she might be the last living Johnny Depp supporter. Like she's still, <laughs> a, she has seen every Depp movie. She's gone out of her way. You know, she's a huge fan and she hated this like wrote a huge review in fact when she got out of the movie i got a text message that it's like i had to scroll for a good few seconds to see it all it's a very long text very thorough and both of them saw it after i saw it i went opening the opening friday night here in the states Uh, my daughter and i went we actually went to a british uh pie shop and got um she got a chicken and mushroom pie and I got fish and chips, which was oh. amazing. Actually, I didn't get chips uh, because I'm nice. Uh, the the very British chef, <laughs> they, it was kind of like they were about to close in an hour and they were out of chips. Um, and he was going to have to cut more potatoes. Uh, and I was like, I won't make you do that, sir. And uh, he, he nice offered. Guy. Yes, a super nice guy. Um, oh, not me. Him. Because I like oh, his charm. I'm a, I, I'm a considerate person is what I'll say. Um, he... Uh, said you know our onion rings are really good though and then he gave us extra onion rings so like instead of ordering two orders he just gave us like a whole bunch of onion rings um as like a thank you for not making him cut more potatoes <laughs> um, he is the nice guy yeah and uh the the fish though oh my goodness dude it was huge but so we went in like full british like we're gonna go watch a harry potter movie let's have this british thing and i have i have a lot of complaints um about this film and i, I can't get into all of them because some of them would be spoilers but uh, I have a couple of little nitpicks. Um, one, this is the uh, sixth film that David Yates has directed in the Harry Potter Wizarding World. Mm-hmm. And so you could look to the director, except the last four Harry Potter films are excellent. Um, I have very few complaints about the last four outside of a few choices that maybe characters do, but I wouldn't even put that on him. Okay. The big difference with the Fantastic Beast movies to the Harry Potter movies is J.K. Rowling is writing the screenplay. She can't write a screenplay. And that is abundantly clear. Uh, she does not understand how to weave a challenging tapestry of a ensemble cast. It, it is, in a book, she nailed it. Kind of. Kind of. Because, really, the Harry Potter books, while we do go every once in a while away from Harry, 
it's all filtered through Harry. And I feel like if she had done the same thing, either with Newt, let Newt actually be the lead character, because he's not. Newt is not the lead character, especially mm-hmm. not in this movie. Um, he's our, he's, everything's kind of circling around him, but he is not the lead character. He is one cog in a big machine that ultimately is Dumbledore. And that, I feel, had she wanted to tell a Dumbledore story, then let's make a series of movies about Dumbledore. I'm fine with that. I would have been content if instead of Fantastic Beasts, this was like Albus and the blah, 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 blah. Like, great. Awesome. But instead, you, you tricked me in the first movie. Fantastic Beasts and how to grow them. Yeah. Yes, I like that. I was thinking you were saying Fantastic Beasts and where to find them, which had they done that, to me, you have an Indiana Jones franchise in this movie. You have a guy who's on a quest to get something mm-hmm. and the struggle he has to get there. You don't need the only antagonist we should have would be other people trying to get those animals or other people trying to stop him from saving the animals, you know, something like that. And that's not what the first movie was. It it's sold that way, but it's not there. It there's a twist, and the twist is what leads into this movie, that it's about Dumbledore and Grindelwald. And I think that's where the problems start. That's not where the problems end. Um, I, uh, obviously, there's a lot of jokes right now about the anachronistics of Dumbledore himself, like his look, his style, uh, mm. and like how it changes so drastically. Um, and more importantly, even the timeline, because at in the Harry Potter films, we're, we're given some flashbacks of him with Tom Riddle, which would have been, you know, in between at a point where it doesn't make sense how old Dumbledore appears in those flashbacks compared to how he appears now. Um, but the other issue I really have is one of the best parts of the Harry Potter uh, movies is the wizarding world that Rowling created, not just Hogwarts but the idea of this magical underbelly of our society, right? Like that it exists right underneath our nose and that we are unaware of it because of magic. Yeah. It's such a cool concept that Universal Studios has done both in their California and their Orlando parks, Hogwarts and Diagon Alley and all sorts of stuff. And it's awesome. And so when you took Fantastic Beasts and you're like, we're going to America, you're like, oh, cool. We're going to see like the American school. We're going to see. And you kind of do. You kind of get a little bit of the magic side of the American world in in the uh, 1930s. But in this one, man, why is this movie in Paris? Like, we get almost nothing. no reason for it to be in Paris. There's no reason, and that is another flaw of this movie. It's like she's just doing things to do them, and that's how a lot of this movie feels. It feels perfunctory. Um, Even as much as I enjoy the Hogwarts uh, sequences in this movie, they're there to get the reaction from the audience because the rest of the movie is not so good. So, like, hey, here's something you like. You like this music because my crowd, it was packed house when I saw it. When the John Williams music kicked in for Hogwarts, lost it. Lost it. Like, there were people cheering. And and then you're like, well, really, the sequence is kind of pointless. Like, sure, it's cool. But at the same time, do we really need to see that, like, you know, he was a, like, there's a joke made. It's in the trailer, but I'm not going to say it just in case. Um, there's a joke made about Newt, though, and then we get a little more background of, of Lita uh, Lestrange, played by Zoe Kravitz. It, it's There's a lot of this movie that just feels erratic and random. Um, like you mentioned, Catherine Watterson, who I love. I've mm-hmm. become a big fan of her. She doesn't need to be in this movie. They force some story arcs there. There's some, just even how like magic works, constantly feels like it's changing in this in this movie. Not in the other ones, but in this one. There are moments where I'm just like, well, why did they do it that way if they could do this or if that was a possibility? Yeah. 
Exactly. Um, I love Dan Fogler character in the first movie. I felt like he was just crammed in here. Um, I get why. I get why. But if you're going to bring a character back because we loved him, then keep him prevalent where we can love him some more. Because he felt like he was an afterthought uh, throughout most of this film. And even the Beast in the title feel like an afterthought for the most part in this movie. And that's what I mean when I say it's not Newt's movie. It's really Newt's a, a pawn in a bigger game. And we've been tricked just like Newt. And maybe that's what she's going for. But I don't know if that makes it for an enjoyable experience. And based on the RT meta score and even the IMDb user scores uh, below a 7 for a Harry Potter movie or a Wizarding World movie, I think I think something's not working right. And there's a big spoiler that I can't give. But if you know when this movie is set time-wise... There's a logical conclusion that we're going towards, and I do not like what the signs are pointing to, um, and that's all I'll say about it. But um, yeah, I I did have some fun. Like I don't want to sit here acting like it's the worst movie I saw this year. It's nowhere near. It's in the middle of the road. But for me, being a big Harry Potter fan, this should have been my favorite movie of the year, and it's nowhere near. Yeah, I've got a few just a few things to throw at you. Firstly, brilliant use of the word perfunctory there doesn't get enough use that word yeah <laughs> like as i mentioned with the fantastic beasts themselves going forward what prominence are they going to play yes newt scamander is he going to be front and center is he gonna mm. is he gonna be the bilbo baggins who's not even the star of his own trilogy that's a good this question suffers from hobbit and star wars prequel trilogy that yes the game's changed but it doesn't make sense why it is and there's too much going on and I'll be interested at the end of this to see which one of those trilogies is actually better. I would have put my money on a Wizarding World trilogy being more cohesive than those other two I mentioned, just mm-hmm. because of the lore and the fact that J.K. Rowling still was involved and she's not quite... I don't think she is quite as megalomaniacal as George Lucas, despite the fact I worship George Lucas. But yeah. Um, so yeah, there's that worry I have about Newt Scamander going forward, because I like Eddie Redmayne, and I like the character yeah, of Newt me too. Uh, even though they, they changed him into a lady killer, which I didn't like, but... You mentioned the timeline. That worries me. Again, there's a few things which you can't go into, but there's other mentions in this film which I think none of that works. None of that fits in. This this fundamentally changes things for the saga and not in a good way. And I just hope J.K. Rowling can somehow, I can't believe she's a screenwriter, I can imagine her being a, a, a you know an assistant or something just to be the, the eyes, the overlord, mm-hmm. if you will, but give, give it to somebody else. Yeah, how she's going to tie this in, despite the fact it's her world, and this might be a question possibly for your daughter, but I'll ask you because unfortunately she's not on the podcast. Would I mean Fantastic Beasts is set on what 120 page pamphlet essentially? Would this story have worked better as a five novel series where you could expand and and kind of mm. bring back what made the those original books so popular and magical? Whether they were the greatest books in the world is a different argument. The fact is, look how Look how much they've touched people and impacted on culture. Had yeah. Fantastic Beasts been a novel series first, do you think they could have firstly made it slightly more cohesive and tie in better? Do you think it would have been received better? I think it depends. Um, one of the, the flaws that I see with what she's doing with Fantastic Beasts is that she is she's rehashing the Harry Potter-Voldemort feud with Grindelwald and Dumbledore. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like she's relying on those two characters being this, you know, the protagonist-antagonist singles. When I think if you had just done a different 
like not everything in the wizarding world has to have been a good wizard versus a bad wizard right like there has to be things that just happen like normal conflict like that's what i'm if you go the indiana jones route and again i get that there's nazis in the indiana jones movies i'm not ignore that what drives indy is to go and get these artifacts that he values and that's newt's character is that guy except instead of you know treasure it's animals he doesn't connect with people he connects with animals he's the ace ventura of the wizarding world and let him do that let because the the creatures are awesome like think of how great buckbeak is in the harry potter universe mm-hmm. right we all love buckbeak we all love um hedwig you know just because it's a gorgeous white owl and like we got into those creatures when they show up in the harry potter universe so now here's an opportunity to give us something magical and wondrous and and create like more lore and you opted to basically make that a side story or like in this movie it's barely even a story right like it happens out of nowhere newt's not hunting that creature it just arrives and then he deals with it because that's what newt does but you know he's the licensed PETA member of of the wizarding world but um (laughs) it did sound like they just kind of shoe hordes of beasts in some way yes it was although i do that was like my favorite sequence for the most part in the movie. I, I really liked it, although it was too short. Um, I do want to give a nod, though. Uh, Callum Turner plays Theseus Commander, uh, mm-hmm. his brother. Callum Turner is in one of my favorite films by Jeremy Saulnier, Green Room. And so, like, whenever yeah, I yeah. see him in something, I get hyped that he's in it. So I want to give a nod. I'm glad he was in this, even though um, he didn't get to do a whole lot. He does get some cool moments in the movie. I thought he looked... I thought the two of them together, Eddie Redmayne and Callum Turner, I think that I did think they shared some similarities even though one is kind of very smooth and very stoic, and the other one's this awkward, sort of scrambly um, oddball, which is Eddie uh, Newt's commander. I did think they, I thought they were casted and well and paired together well. I thought well, so too. My main problem with this franchise as a whole is, I, I, again, I'm not going to say what happens at the end of the five film series. If anybody, anybody who knows this world knows where we're leading to and the major moment that kind of then changes the game for both of the, the main protagonist antagonists in this film, not Newt's commander, of course. But my main concern is we've got all of these other characters, including Newt. You have Queenie, who I thought was so, so good in the first film, and again, is just... Mm. It's not it's not Addison Sudal, it's a character who's not afforded the best... I, to be fair, actually, she, she got more depth in this film, and I'm interested to see where she goes. Oh, yeah, Dan Fogel as, uh, as Jacob, I thought he had the best arc in this film, I think mainly because he's the only one who had an arc, <laughs> but... You've got all of these characters now, including Catherine Tina, Catherine Watson. I mean, what's their significance to the big major story? Because mm-hmm. J.K. Rowling is now inextricably, she's tied this into this the part of franchise, which we know and love now, when she said she wasn't going to. This was meant to be kind of a standalone saga. Now yeah, that we're, now we are so invested, and again, there's no spoilers there, but we're so invested in this, they're, they're so connected. They then are. How, what, what, it's almost what are the point of, what's the point of these characters? Essentially, because we know what happens, we know where, where po- the Harry Potter saga starts and what causes it to start with Voldemort and Harry. We know where it ends, and anybody who knows the mythology knows some of Dumbledore's story and obviously how that ties into these films. So I'm kind of thinking, where is it's not pointless, but I think where where are we actually going to go with this to make me really feel invested in these characters, knowing full well that they're never ever mentioned again. So, and I know yeah. that the the original saga, if you will, is 70 years previous, pro, uh, after this film. So there's no real reason why they'd mention Jacob as this big major player, but nobody's ever mentioned again. And 
these next three films have got to span a 19-year period. How on earth are they going to do that? Because the J.K. Rowling has said that the five films are going to cover 19 years. Well, there was only a six months or so, a year time gap, sorry, in between the first and the second film. And that's 18 years for three films. So that's, I didn't even realize that. That's how crazy. They, however, they're going to use some mad prosthetics, prosthetics in that last film. Are they going to have a six-year gap between films in in universe? How on earth? Like I just, it's my. And again, I sound I sound like the guy who doesn't like this film, but I I'm more worried about where they're going to take it and J.K. Rowling's use as a screenwriter and. Uh-huh. Again, she wrote these very successful books. I'd never rag on her for her her novel writing, but as a screenwriter, she's lacking at the minute. I just worry how they're going to make this a compelling narrative going forward, despite the fact that I, have in, I enjoyed this second film more than most people, and I like the first film, but I think this next film is an absolute game-changer because if Fantastic Beasts 3 doesn't make money or doesn't grab critics, then that's two and a half films which have been panned because the first film had pretty good reviews across yeah. the board. Not amazing. This one's been slammed. If the third film doesn't make cash and it doesn't get good reviews, will there be a fourth and a fifth film? And what kind of, can, can you make the wizarding world less popular by constantly yeah. putting out stuff? Cause I mean, there was a time where star Wars looked dead, you know, and mm-hmm. we, we accredit force awakens and JJ Abrams for kind of breathing, breathing life back into it. And then mm-hmm. you could, you know, there are some people who would say Ryan Johnson kicked the life out of it. I disagree completely. Yeah, I disagree. But then Solo uh, kind of is evidence of fatigue, at least, from the Star Wars universe. Is that going to happen to the Harry Potter world? Yeah, are they... Maybe they just need a new screenwriter. Maybe. Have J.K. Rowling on board. Supervise. Supervise afterwards. Supervising everything. Giving the But then she's not even in touch with her own canon and mythology, which worries me. But have yeah. her on board to kind of be that George Lucas to give the thumbs up or the thumbs down to ideas, but let somebody else structure the narrative and the characters going forward. Agreed. Uh, I hope, I hope it, the ship is righted. I want them to be good because I love yeah. the wizarding world of Harry Potter. Um, I have a friend, a co a colleague, another teacher um, who is a really, really into Harry Potter. She's in fact building a Harry Potter Christmas tree. Like it's a Christmas tree, but all the decorations she's making from scratch, um, all Harry Potter theme, like she took a red ribbon, yellow ribbon, blue ribbon, and mm. uh, green ribbon, and painted the stripes of the house colors on them, like hand painted. Like I mean, going all out, and she barely liked this movie. Like she's that kind of a fanatic of Harry Potter fandom, and barely liked Grindelwald. Um, has a lot of issues with some of the the things, including Johnny Depp's casting. Um, but uh, yeah, if if diehard fans are questioning choices. There's a problem. It's not just critics who are not not picking up on this. There's there's a lot to it. So, yeah. And diehard fans, go online just quickly about Christmas decorations. You can get Christmas tree decorations in the shape of a star, which are I don't know if it's sort of kind of papier mâché crafted, but they use actual te- pages from the Harry Potter books. So you can have Christmas tree stars, three uh, D stars, which are crafted from actual pages from the actual Ooh. books from the first eight films. And I've got to say. They look superb. So whoever crafts them, they're listening. Sorry, I can't give you credit because I don't know who you are. But I've seen them. Somebody at work had them, and they look inc- they look incredible. So um, huh. yeah, there are. Uh, and I mentioned that partly because you mentioned can they make a Wizarding World film dull, and can they lose the fan base? Yeah, there's such a rabid fan base, and I don't know the minutiae of the fan base whether there is 
vitriolic and are sometimes damn well horrible as things like the Star Wars fans are. Yeah. And I, I say that as a huge Star Wars fan. Yeah, huge Star Wars fan. I mean, I have the force running through me, but I don't like the fan base sometimes. But the Potter one always seems to be slightly more, slightly toned down, but just as passionate. So. How do you lose them? Yeah, it's it's a it's a slippery slope though. We've seen it happen with fandoms before, and I don't want that to happen because I mean, one, I live not far from the Wizarding World, so I don't Same want that to well, like, get closed down or something. You know what I'm saying? So um, I live about thirty miles thick from Leavesden, where they filmed them. So uh, I've got where I grew up is just around the corner from where they filmed the Harry Potter's where his house in the original in Privet Drive. So there's oh, a lot of connections for both of us, and that's why yeah. we just want it to work and. There's passion coming out there only because we just want to see it work. All right. That leads us to another sequel uh, for the month of November, which the month of November had a few sequels, but this is the only other sequel we're going to be talking about in the, the, the four big movies. And we're going with uh, Creed 2, um, directed by Stephen Capel Jr., uh, stars Michael B. Jordan, Sylvester Stallone, Tessa Thompson. Got to give a shout out to uh, Felicia Rashad, Dolph Lundgren, and I feel fairly new, Florian Montiano. Montiano, he's a boxer. He's, he's, oh, okay. he's a model. He's a model and an actual boxer. I did not know that. Um, I also want to give. I think it's Buddy Hor- Russell Hornsby. Um, no, there's the other guy. The guy who's the man, the the promoter, is in um, the Hate You Give as well. I don't think it's Russell Hornsby, but it's the film I need to. Uh, I'm going to be watching this week just to. Throw oh. that, throw that out. There is Russell Hornsby. He's, I think, his buddy Marcel. I think the characters. Okay, yeah, yeah. It's Russell Hornsby. Uh, he, he is not in this much, but I really like him as an actor, and he's my probably my favorite part of the Hate You Give. So, um, Creed two, following up uh, Ryan Coogler's uh, version of the story, um, it's Creed two is good. I, I enjoyed it. However, it was noticeable that Ryan Coogler was not involved. Agreed. Um, the the writing is is clearly not as strong uh this feels a lot more like the rocky sequels where it's good but it's just kind of going paint by numbers what you expect to happen um that does not take away from michael b jordan's performance he is terrific uh i do feel like tessa thompson's character suffers the most i think bianca was such a, a breath of fresh air in the first film um that like she is this independent strong woman and their relationship the way it developed in creed i was just so attached to and tessa thompson has become one of my favorite actresses if i see her in something i am almost guaranteed to go see it and i felt like she got relegated to a side character and even more of like a sidekick where she was like making sacrifices for um donnie in the film and that was disappointing and i thought maybe a a sign of the change in in guard of who's writing it um that said, though, I, I still think the boxing sequences are super strong. Um, they're really... I love the way they shoot the boxing fights in both of the films. I, I feel like this one attempts to kind of mimic Coogler style, and it's not spot on, but it's really close and so still really enjoyable. Um, I thought Dolph Lundgren, it was cool kind of getting the, the Victor Drago thing back. If Listeners, if you're not familiar with the premise, um, this is Apollo's Creed son versus... Uh, drago's son the re- redo of rocky four basically it's like mm-hmm. rocky four part two um and it's a little cheesy in some ways but they kind of acknowledge that within the movie and i thought that helped it like it it made it feel more grounded than it did when we first heard when the talk of creed 2 came out that he was gonna fight drago's son it felt like such a joke 
Like, are you serious? Like, what are you doing? But Buddy's character, or uh, Russell Hornsby's character, Buddy, explains it in the film that, like, you know, boxing isn't the draw it used to be. You gotta have drama to make people care. And if, if you want any proof of that in real life, look at all the Floyd Mayweather fights, because that's probably <laughs> the only boxer you're familiar with anymore, unless you're a, a diehard boxing fan. And all of those are full of drama. And, uh, I mean, God, the Conor McGregor thing is the perfect example. Um, look how much money that fight brought in simply because of the, the story behind the fight, not the fight itself. And so that works, I think, to fix that, like, sequel grab kind of element. Because that's what it felt like. It felt like a really cheesy sequel premise. Like, let's have Drago come back. And I think it ends up working. Um, Stallone gets to monologue a little too much, in my opinion, in this movie. Like, I loved his performance in Creed. Here it feels like he was uh he was loving his performance too much in this movie. Um, not that it's bad. Again, I think I think Stallone's doing some of his best work in the last two Creed films that he's done in years. Um, and I am I'm a huge Michael B. Jordan fan at this point. So the movie worked for me, but I I it I was definitely underwhelmed. I wanted to walk out. When I walked out of Creed, I was blown away at how great I thought it was. And here I walked out wishing i had the same feeling i had when i saw creed so that was my kind of take on the overall film yeah that without meaning to sound like a broken record every time we talk about a boxing film i love boxing films like they grab me every time the creed was what three years ago that was a, such a brilliant example of how to do a boxing movie mm-hmm. right they did that so right and in terms of the rocky saga they lent on it you know fairly heavily but didn't feel nostalgic to me didn't feel like they really went for it that like that but it all—it was all crafted under Ryan Coogler's methodical eye. So Creed Two already had a big act, tough act to follow because Coogler wasn't coming back for this film. Uh, Stephen Cable Jr. is a very capable director, and they're going to take that away from him. But what this film lacks is the depth and the nuance that Coogler injects into it. Mm-hmm. The kind, the emotion that he gave the characters, the develop their developments, the motivations, and what happened in the film—that's what I felt like was missing. And you mentioned the. It was kind of formulaic, and it was. It's not to say there wasn't any emotion, because there was. There really was. Yeah, for but sure. You, you it, by by the end, and again, this this film was bookended by a very good to me, a brilliant introduction and a fabulous ending. But even then, it did kind of still feel like you were checking off major moments, even in that final act. It did feel like you were sort of going through. Oh, this is going to happen. Then this bit's going to happen. Then you probably know this is going to happen, and that took it away a little bit for me but when that third act kicks in just sit back and enjoy it because it's hard not to get swept up in the action because it's so well presented yeah despite they've got despite having some stylistic slow motion shots which i don't i'm not always a massive fan of those in unless it's done by matthew vaughan in kingsman give me that all day long but yeah what he what cable jr does do is he does keep the focus on the characters he doesn't just turn into a a boxing movie. It's about the characters first and the boxing comes second almost. There's a brilliant training montage in this which saved the film because it was starting to drag in that middle section. Mm-hmm. Um, and whether we, into, before I get into the characters, whether we see a Creed 3, I don't know because Sylvester Stallone said he's not going to do this franchise anymore and this is his franchise so without Rocky in any of these films it doesn't. it's not going to feel like a part of that saga it'd be disconnected but i thought stallone was good i thought he was better in creed where i thought he was one of the best performers of the year for me in creed yeah though i think this is dolph london's possibly his best work i think i kind of agree there's whenever there's a scene again i'm no no spoilers there's a scene with sylvester and dolph together which is just it was brilliant i was on the edge of my seat 
Um, yeah, Tessa Thompson is sidelined somewhat for this. Michael B. Jordan is, I think he's fast becoming one of the top tier talents in Hollywood. I love watching his films. And oh. Florian Montiano is a, oh, he's a monster. That guy scared the heck out of me watching this film. He is the Victor Drago. My God, he's a big man. I thought he did a good job too, especially that you're saying he's not an actor first, that he's a boxer. It, they played to his strengths as a fighter and in a very intimidating presence rather than having him act necessarily. But when he did have to act, I thought he was he, I thought he was good enough. They for, yeah, they forced a couple of scenes that you know, but they, they I think they played it well. It's not perfect, but it's 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 solid and it kind of makes sense even to his personality that he would be kind of like emotionally stunted to like the the character you know like he's not he's not really good at you know saying how he feels per se or uh, even reacting normally um and it would make sense you know given the upbringing and everything that are presented but i i would still watch creed 3 um even if stallone did bow out i feel like they kind of opened that up as a possibility that he wouldn't be back like this is now donnie's story like it's time for you to 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 you know to be the the front guy and well, he's confirmed it now. Stallone. He's come out on on Instagram and said he's done. He's said you know he's done his time with these films now, not because he doesn't want to. He said it with a heavy heart, but he's a, he's a, he's kind of said now that was that was his last ever film in the Rocky slash Creed saga. But I, I do hope they do Creed three, um, just because I kind of want to see what that movie would look like. Because bring that Clubber Lang's kid. Oh God. Um, <laughs> bring the, yeah. Um, I pity the watch fool. it happen. But <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I would like to see, because they, they open up some new stuff in this movie that I'd like to see explored in the next film. Um, and again, I also, like, you, 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 if you have boxing movies, I'm that way with, like, movie, like, music, fan-based yeah. movies, and t- teaching movies now really get me, like, especially, like, teaching movies make me cry for stuff that I would have never thought I would cry about. Like, just, like, having a person care about their education makes me tear up. Like, cause I'm just like, I'm constantly bombarded with people who just don't appreciate free education that they get. And so it's a good thing to be passionate about. Um, so things like that. Uh, so I totally get where you're coming from with boxing movies and I, I'll admit the ones that I've watched, I've really, really liked, uh, as an adult, especially the Rocky films that I've seen. I like Creed. I loved, um, there was a, a Miles Teller boxing movie. I can't think of Oh, something bleed. Um, yeah, bleed for this. I think bleed for this. That's, that's fantastic. I uh, really like Raging that. Bull, Million Dollar Baby, of course. I, I I will let you know, Matt. I've not seen either one of those. <laughs> <laughs> they are on my gap list, and I am aware of how bad it is that I've not. I did try to watch Raging Bull once uh, on New Year's Eve a few years back, and um, it was a downer of a of a New Year's Eve movie. So we got turned off in a few minutes. <laughs> um, I was surprised, but it's just something about. Just sorry to interject there, but about this about boxing movies, there's something about it's almost like the underdog story, the toil that got the inspiration and the the graft and the craft that goes into getting to that moment at the end of the film, which invariably happens in every boxing film. But there's something about that rise and the obstacles. It's very inspiring, and I like boxing as a sport. And um, if anyone sort of thought how Tyson Fury got out from that twelfth round knockout, but I like the sport for the most part. But there's something about the films which just gets the blood pumping for me. They're like mm. in a similar way to the teaching films, you get that kind of rush uh, of emotion from them. There's something about them for me, and I don't know what it is, but every time I watch one, I'm always invested. 
Well, we just did on top five, we did our top five uh, sports movies in honor mm-hmm. of Creed Two, And I considered doing boxing and then I even was going to expand out and do like fighting movies. So like UFC, like there's Warrior and oh, um, awesome. Um, but then we just we, we backed up and did sports in general. And I think a lot of sports movies, they share that underdog story, you know, like um, The Sandlot is an underdog story. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I love um, a movie that most people don't love, but The Replacements, it's a Keanu Reeves yes. football movie. I love what about that the movie. Mighty Ducks. Oh, of course, man! Mighty yeah. Ducks one and two, three yeah. not so much. D three, mm. yeah, but the first two are great, and yeah. you get uh, young Keenan Thomas. Um, yes, you do. In and two with the knuckle puck, you know. So, um, Emilio Estevez doing what he does best, coaching kids hockey, and I love hockey, so I love that film as well. Yeah, and so you know, and um, there's tons of that, and that's like I think why sports movies work so well because the best ones are a lot of the ones that are underdog related. I mean, major league, you know, mm-hmm. uh, it's, it's all about the people everyone's expecting to, to fail and we want to see them succeed. We can relate to that because we always feel like we're the underdog of our own story, right? Like everybody's against us. Yeah. And we got to overcome. And so totally get that. And I agree uh, why they're beloved by so many, why the Rocky franchise has lasted eight movies now. And with yeah. uh, some bad ones in there, because five, five's horrible, universally <laughs> hated. I don't think I've ever heard anyone defend five. <laughs> Uh, it, this fit watching Creed two, which I didn't think was the kind of throw. I didn't think it was as good as Creed. What Creed? That Creed is a better film for me in most aspects, but I still very much enjoyed Creed two. But it did make me want to go back and rewatch the old Rocky films, including Rocky five, but um, especially uh, Rocky Balboa from la- the last decade, which I think I don't know if you've seen it or not, but that was a magnificent return to form for the franchise and Sly Stallone as well. So anybody uh, out there hasn't seen Rocky Balboa, I think it's two thousand and five, two thousand and six. That's I've, fabulous. I've not seen that one. That one's on my list because uh, I've been meaning to get to that one. And I actually want to rewatch four. Um, it's <laughs> been a long time since I, I think I saw four in the theater, if I'm not wrong, with my mom when I was like super young. Um, I mean, I would have been like four or five, I think, uh, if I remember correctly, when four came out. Um, but uh, Yeah, about that. I'm fairly confident I saw that in the theater because my mom was a fan of the Rocky movies, um, which I, I think most people are. And I wasn't for a long time. Like I had kind of written it off. I think it's I've been a fan now for like five or six years. Like it's been that recent where I finally turned around on it, gave them another go. Because as a kid, I just didn't I wasn't interested in boxing. Um, it's funny because I love UFC, but I can't watch a boxing match. Like boxing matches bore me. I watch UFC pretty much any time if it's on. But um, I'm not currently seeking it out. But I used to like I'd go. We have a few sports bars here that'll show the pay per views, and I would like go you know with friends and watch the fights and really care. Right now I have no clue yeah. what's going on, but. Um, I'll still do it if it's there. I'll watch it, but boxing, yeah. not so much. Rocky Four was nineteen eighty five. What a good year that was! But so you would have been three, and I yeah. would have been emerging. So, um, but <laughs> it, it makes yeah, it makes me want to go and watch it. I mean, Rocky Four, obviously that's the the big moment with the, with uh, Ivan Drago, Dolph Lundgren, who again was robotically terrifying in that film, and Carl Weathers as Apollo Creed, the legendary moment when. Well, if you haven't seen Rocky Four, I won't spoil it, but it this film obviously leans and is derived from that, and the whole film was bad. And I like the tie-ins to Rocky Four and how they go back and recognise that there were films from thirty odd years ago, and they tie into that. And having Dolph Lundgren, who I don't think was actually going to come back for this film, but Sylvester Stallone made not he convinced him when he showed him the script that this is the, this is what your character who he is now. And the development worked, but yeah, Rocky Four, the how how it ties in because it's referenced an awful lot. It 
it worked for me. And again, I think Dolph Lundgren is, he's still got that menace to him in this. He's still got something behind his eyes, which just makes me terrified. But I think he's very good in this film. And uh, Montiano is his son. They work well. And I was one of the people who actually did quite like the idea of Creed versus Drago 2. Only if they could make it feel organic, which is actually what they did. You mentioned they the did. promoter. I, I, cause only because I thought, what a brilliant... Again, as a fan of the series, and I, again, recognise that some of them aren't the best films, but um, as a fan of the series, just having the son versus son of these two great rivals from the pivotal moment of the saga almost... It, it was enough to get me very excited. And I didn't come out disappointed from Creed 2. But the night before, I revisited Creed. And I remember it was such a good film. That was a great film, that was. So I went into Creed 2 with my expectations even higher. And I would, like I've admitted, it, I didn't find this film as effective as Creed. I still thought it was a very good film. But it, it, I think maybe what this film needed was simply Ryan Coogler because he just injected so much into that first film but i would yeah i'd still give this i think i gave it a high eight, eight out of ten but i'm not gonna i would be lying if i said i wasn't hoping for that just that bit more something in there to really make me more invested than i was especially in that middle part but then but i will say actually they do throw a curveball in this film which did, did surprise me um about a third of the way through but i enjoy i liked that but yeah there was something just something missing to really elevate this to you know, fantastic levels. Yeah. All right. Well, we're down to our last movie from the the four. Yeah, and that one is Widows. Speaking of fantastic levels, Widows, directed by Steve McQueen, who's back, starring what a cast: Viola Davis, Michelle Rodriguez, Elizabeth Debicki, Colin Farrell, oh, Liam Neeson, uh, Brian Tyree Henry, Cynthia Erivo, and Daniel Kaluuya. Firstly, as I've mentioned, what an excellent ensemble cast. Mm-hmm. And essentially, in a very small nutshell, he, as the trailer gives away, an, an armed robbery by a renowned criminal, who's played by Liam Neeson, goes horribly wrong. The local kingpin slash politician-to-be, Jamal Manning, which is Brian Tyra Henry, he seeks rest- retribution and the return of his money from the widows of those involved. So, a great kind of crime thriller noir backdrop is given, and... Wow, I was in. Oh, I loved this film. Noises aside, yeah. I thought this film was magnificent. Viola Davis is a powerhouse, and I demand she gets nominated for this film because I thought oh, yeah. she was. She really delivers. Cynthia Erivo, who I thought was great in Bad Times at Royale, when she was great in a good film. Michelle Rodriguez. It has a kind of about turn for a role. She actually gets something to do, which is good. Daniel Kaluuya scared me in the cinema. He's so yeah. chilling. Robert Duvall, as his character, the great Robert Duvall, he just plays that horrible character so well. But this is a powerful, raw, stylish, effective movie. It is, it's paced so well. Every scene feels vital to me. There is a momentum which... Even when it starts to slow down, it still feels vital. And I don't mean slow down in a bad way, because there are times when it's not all pedal to the metal. Yeah, for sure. But then it ramps up and the twists again, there are marvellous. And the setups all get a payoff. Nothing is left unturned. And it's not just a heist movie. Of course, there there are messages and commentaries of race, corruption, crime, politics, and gender, which are played. But what I appreciate the most which is something which sometimes i 
fall foul of being irked by, but they didn't do it in this film. They didn't. It didn't feel heavy-handed to me. It didn't feel like I was getting beaten around the face no. by these messages. They were there, but it was so sharply written, so well written that it didn't feel like I was being force-fed something. It looks beautiful. There's some stunning shots. There's a one-shot scene of a car and the outside, the exterior um, changes from poor to rich as we get through the city. The use of reflections is wonderful. I, I didn't know. I'd heard rumblings that this was a pretty damn good film uh, for the last probably for the last about six months since the festival scene and that I'd heard things and it's been in my list to watch and I went on opening night and there was only a few people in the cinema with me and two of them left and I've also got to say four people left my screening of Creed 2 which I was amazed wow. by um, but two people and I never leave films but two people left Widows uh, and I have no idea why I think maybe they were thinking that they were going to get something a bit different, something a bit more high octane. But when this when this film ramps up a gear, it gets high octane, and there's some gut wrenching scenes in this film. I could go on all night about this film, but the the widows didn't become superwomen like uh, like Jennifer Garner's character Peppermint did. It, they still Jesus. kept it to a kind of relatable, grounded level. I I could wax lyrical. I think I gave this the perfect score because. I could not find much that I didn't like about this film. And I know I was saying to JB about how much I enjoyed this film. And when he said he was going to see it, I just think, I hope to God he enjoys it because I've been saying how great it is. So uh, what did you think? Sucked. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I Total opposite of that. I also, it's in it's in my top 15 for the year right now. Um, I've been a Viola Davis fan for a while. She is... I mean, the fact that she's in Suicide Squad is still, like, a mind-boggling thing, right? Like, that this terrific, amazing... And she's great in Suicide Squad, let's be real. She... Yeah. I don't think she can do wrong. Um, but she was not the highlight for me of this movie, because I expect her to be as great as she is, and she never lets me down. She's always there. What I didn't know was how great Elizabeth Debicki it was. Mm-hmm. I was... Not only did I love her performance, but I thought her character was the most interesting in the movie. And that's saying something because all these characters are freaking interesting. Like, they all have reasons to to hate them and root for them. You know, every one of them. Like, I think there is not a single character who is perfect. They're all flawed people, and I, I that makes them relatable. And um, I loved her performance so much, and I really love that character and what happens with that character. Um, then I also... Uh, I, I'm a fan of Donald Glover, and he has a TV sh- series called Atlanta, yeah. And in that, there's uh, Brian Tyree Henry plays his cousin Paperboy, who is a rapper, and I was really impressed with him on Atlanta. Um, I've only seen I've seen all of season one, and I saw the first two or three episodes of season two, um, which is saying something because I don't watch a lot of TV, folks. So the fact that I made an effort to watch Atlanta speaks volumes. But um, and Lakeith Stanfield also in Atlanta, so right, yeah. three Good reasons call. to watch it. Um, but Brian Tyree Henry was also in uh, White Boy Rick earlier this year. Mm-hmm. And I, I am I am so excited to see where his career is going because he continues to impress me. I loved him in Widows um, because that scene in the trailer where like you, you hear him talking and like threatening Viola Davis in the trailer. It works. It's so much more powerful in the movie because it's not as menacing as it came off in as the trailer. There's a lot of nuance to his character that I think the trailer kind of undersells and almost makes it feel like he's just this thug gangster guy and there's way more to it than that in the film and that's one of the things i like about so much of this movie 
Um, I am new to Steve McQueen. I have avoided 12 Years a Slave uh, because I know the subject matter is going to make me just miserable. Um, uh-huh. And so I've avoided it despite hearing how great it is. And uh, I haven't seen any of his other films. Um, I think Shame is his, right? With uh, yeah, Fast Shame. Shame and, eight years ago now, yeah. And there's one more in between, I think, that I've not seen. But So this was my entry into McQueen as a director. So I don't have a lot of experience to comment on, but I really liked his process and his storytelling in this film. Um, I, I There's so many, like you said, the reflection shots, um, the way the story is kind of broken down. And I've heard some people say that this was, uh, well, this was supposed to be a miniseries or something. Um, or a series? It was set on a miniseries from like the 80s in, on BBC over in, in England. Oh. But this is a lot more hard-hitting, shall we say. Yeah. And there are, like you mentioned, all the, the commentary on society that's built into this. And it's a lot. And I don't feel like I don't feel like he necessarily takes a stance either. I feel like it's more like these are issues that these people would deal with if they were real. And these are issues that are real. And what do you think as an audience? Yeah. Like, what, are, what is your take? And um, I think, that, you know, I felt my opinions coming out. But there was also some things I've talked to like Big Tuna, who's a friend of the podcast, um, about some stuff where I didn't really notice it until he brought it up and things like that. Because they are not issues that I was thinking on, but they were in the movie. They're, they're mm-hmm. there. And I, I just – I've thought about this movie and thought about this movie and thought about this movie – and the more I do, the more I've listened to a few podcasts that have reviewed this and whatever, the more I'm just kind of sure how great it is. And I don't think everyone will like it because it's not a traditional heist movie. It's not just balls to the wall action. Um, it's not just a drama. Uh, there's there's a lot here. And um, I think it's necessary to compare Fantastic Beasts and Widows because I think both have a huge ensemble cast. And one does it effectively and one does it poorly. And this is an example of a writer who is uh, Gillian Flynn, um, mm-hmm. is given credit here with uh, Linda LaPointe, who I guess did the original Windows. Um, and McQueen has also got a writing credit. They wove these characters together so tightly and so perfectly. It I never felt like I didn't know enough about any of them for the story to work. Because like even um, the crew of of Harry Liam Neeson's character that we barely get to spend time with. We know enough about them to kind of know who they were when they were alive. Yes. And that says something. Cause we don't spend a lot of time with them, but we just through the, the widows and through some of their stories, it all feels very organic. There's no like big exposition dump where we just get this monologue of dialogue. You know, things always flow and feel just organic, natural and exceptionally entertaining um, I, I don't think I was bored for a second in this movie, and it's got a two-hour and nine-minute runtime. Uh, it could have pre- it could have kept going, and I would have been in. Like I was still in every minute. So, um, Widows just I don't think enough people are seeing it. So if you're listening yeah. and you've missed it, go. And I do think the theater is where you should watch this because there's less of a chance of distraction at a theater if you have any sense of etiquette. And I think you need to have your eyes on the screen the whole time for this movie because there's a lot of nuance and a lot of things that you could miss if you were glancing at your cell phone. Yeah, I mean, every oh, far, far bit for me to tell people how to watch a film, but usually you want to get immersed in it. If you're watching a film, you want to turn the lights off and, and just give yourself to that film and absorb it for how long it's on for. A film like this, you absolutely have to because it hits you harder if you do. And those, like I mentioned, those sort of gut punches, they hit they're like an anvil to your stomach when they hit in the cinema because 
And a lot of that's down to the writing, but it's also down to those performances we mentioned. And that's what I've, I mean, that's the problem. The writing, so could we only mention Colin Farrell? And when we don't yeah, mention somebody yeah. to the level of Farrell, who's who, again in the last te- last decade has risen from being this kind of strange bad boy that he was when he was in his youth to being a damn fine actor. And I, like you've mentioned uh, with Tessa Thompson, when I see Colin Farrell's name on the mm-hmm. on the cast list, I'm there regardless of the film. I mean, in, in, in Bruges, Seven Psychopaths, The Lobster, Killing the Sacred Deer. Yep. I mean, just movie Even after movie. his performance in Fantastic Beasts. Yeah. I thought he was the best part of that. And I was so... The biggest crime of Grindelwald was we didn't get more called Colin Farrell. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, Viola, Viola Davis, Suicide Squad, Widow, she knows how to put a team together. Just one was better than the other. The dog. <laughs> now, I mentioned the dog from this film because I, I my mother, I'm, dad, my mum and dad, they used to have one of the dogs, the White West Highland Terriers. We used to have one. Uh, rest in peace, Teddy. But the the dog in this film was also in Game Night and was... Netflix Insatiable. So this dog has had a, has had a far more successful year than I have. And it's yeah, a dog. Yeah, I mean, God, they're... I love the dog. But... That dog's owners must be, like, just rolling in money right now from this. Um, I mean, I don't know what, how much a dog owner gets paid for their dog being in a movie, but, I mean, three big movies... Well, two big movies... And then Insatiable on Netflix. I don't know how the Netflix bunny's doing as far as that goes. But nonetheless, man, like, because Game Night, that dog gets some prominent scene with Jason Bateman, Mm -hmm. and it's pretty great. Um, But yeah. yeah. Widow's in my top six for the year, so uh, just edged out of the top five by a movie we spoke about last month, Blind Spotting, but Widow's is in my top six of the year, and I don't think in the next, you know, within the next 30 days, shall we say, I can't see it being dislodged any further down. So um, whether or not I'll revisit it and it gets higher is another story. I can't see it dropping any further than that with what's coming out next month. I I was near blown away by most aspects, almost every aspect of this film. And again, if Viola Davis isn't recognised, whether she wins or not, I there's there's so many fantastic actresses, uh, performances this year. Whether she wins is a different story, but... For me, she's got to be recognised. I think she has to be, but people may disagree. But I think she, I think she should be. And again, Daniel Kaluuya is a psychopath in this film. He really brings it. He's terrifying. Yeah, there's a few sequences where you're just like, is this the same guy from Get Out who I thought was yeah. so kind and charming? And same like, guy from Black Panther. Yeah, who was also, I mean, pretty honourable in that movie. Uh, yeah, like pretty. Uh, um, all right, so. Those are the big four movies from the month of November. Bohemian Rhapsody, Fantastic Beasts, Creed 2, Widows. But like we said, uh, this month had a lot of other movies that could have been in the top four. It was hard to decide. Um, we kind of went with what we think, I think, was the biggest box office draws. Because um, there's a lot of, or like, just, smaller movies. Or just the movies. best. Well, I don't know in if we Widow's can say the case. best. Well, in with... Widow's case. <laughs> okay, all right. For sure with Widows. Uh, Widows is, I think, the clear standout of this month, uh, in my opinion. I went in kind of um, unsure how much I would like it and absolutely loved it. Plus that song that's in the trailer, like the music that sets the tone is really good. Like it's super sets the tone for that film. Um, yeah. I don't, I think those top four are, aren't bad. I think the top four, 70% good. Bohemian Rhapsody, very good. Widows, inc- fantastically good. Creed 2, pretty damn good. Fantastic Beasts, I liked it more than you did but yeah. i wouldn't say there was a terrible film in those four one worse than the rest of them but not for me not a terrible one true i agree with that um there was not a like like because last month we had some stinkers in the top <laughs> in the four um october was not a great month um although there was a couple of good movies there 
but the rest we saw a lot this month and um even together like we saw several of the same films although yeah. you got a couple that i didn't get to i got a couple that you didn't get to um one that i can only say that i saw and that will be <laughs> it but i will plug that i will be posting my review on december 12th um but let's uh we're just going to kind of skim through these we're not going to spend as yep. much time uh we're not going to go through like cast lists and stuff unless we really want to say something about somebody um, but we're just going to go through, and uh, if we both saw it, we'll just kind of give our thoughts, and um, we'll get through this. So, Ralph Breaks the Internet, another sequel this month, because there's a few sequels this month. Um, I liked Ralph Breaks the Internet. I loved Wreck-It Ralph. I did not love Ralph Breaks the Internet. Um, I thought it just didn't have the same nostalgia pull for me that the first one did, because I am a gamer, so I loved all the video game references in the first film, and those are underplayed for social media references here. And while some of them work, um, the best part by far is the Disney princess use in this film. I love that. Otherwise, uh, I thought the first 30 minutes were kind of slow and, and dull, and I was almost out of the movie before they got to the good stuff. Um, and so I was kind of already not feeling it all the way. But I think you liked it a little more than that. Yeah, just a bit. I I agree with what you're saying. There was parts in this film that did drag. Um, it was fun. That's a good moments. So I didn't really find any... LOL moments, laugh out loud moments, really, but just lots of very sort of very good little gags, which I expect from a film like this. It still managed to pull that emotional rag, ring that emotional rag towards the end for me. Yeah. John C. Riley, Sarah Silverman, both very good. The the use of the internet and all the IPs did get in the way of the story for me at the time, but as John said before, in a in an off air chat, not as bad as the emoji movie, but yeah, the cameos are great from the classic and new Disney's. The princesses were by far the best bit, and the best gags were in the trailer. The first one is better as a sequel. I thought it was a very good sequel because you know sequelitis can hit sometimes. But it was with for the hype, it wasn't as good as it could have been. But I still think I still think it was a very solid, very yes, decent sequel. I agree. I, I am not saying don't see it. I'm definitely saying go see it. But it's I was slightly disappointed that it wasn't. And I mean I shouldn't be. It's a sequel. Sequels are often not as good, but. Yeah, the um, first film had more charm to it. Mm-hmm, for sure. Um, Second one, has, this film has uh, no charm. Yeah, the next film on the list for me, oh, Robin Hood. Oh, why do these modern retellings have to be, and I hate this word, but gritty and tough? I know. Much like that steaming ugh, toilet blocker, King Arthur. Why do they have to make everything so grimy? Robin Hood is a, played by Taron Egerton, is a superhero, he's untouchable, no damage can be done. He flings himself around in slow motion with just, you know, unerring accuracy against these gimps, goons with stormtrooper aim. He's, <laughs> he, he can flirt with, hopelessly enough, Maid Marion, Eve Hewson, who I said to John. He's, she's basically just a low-cut top with nothing to do. So progressive yeah. character at my foot. He can create credibility stretching schemes in seconds and deceive a clearly intelligent sheriff like nobody's business. It's very stylized. It's not good to look at. Very much like King Arthur. Taron Egerton is good to look at. Very handsome man, but I don't think I didn't enjoy him here. He's not as good. He's not as charismatic. Best. He's a bit wooden and a bit flat. Jamie Fox is wasted. Ben Mendelsohn looks like he's having a blast. He looks like he's having a great time. Yeah. And Jamie Dornan, for me, he was it afforded some depth in his role, and I thought he was one of the better parts of the film. But I thought this film was just awful. Yeah, not not enjoyable. There's a lot of weird choices that, like, anachronistic is all get out. Like, there's just things that I'm like, like, there's a machine gun crossbow at one point. Yeah. I don't know if that exists. I don't think it does. It It's cool visually, 
but if you're like trying to retell a lore and even like the way they they frame it as though like oh you think you know but you have no idea like that's essentially the opening premise is that like yeah um and then it's just like oh but it's it's batman it's batman begins (laughs) in almost every way and that's not a compliment i love batman begins this robin hood should never mirror batman because batman should mirror robin hood robin hood's been around we don't need him to become batman he batman became a robin hood s type of character you know not literally but that's the idea he's from those older heroes even in the comics i mean he's inspired by zorro directly in the comics but still batman takes from robin hood not the other way and that's where i think this movie just goes downhill it's trying to make robin hood retrofit into today's modern take on heroes and they picked the wrong universe they picked the dc universe to mimic it and (laughs) they did yeah no guys have you not paid attention how bad the dc movies have been like wonder woman had to break the mold to be successful by making her positive and upbeat (laughs) like colorful yeah you went the wrong direction and it's showing no one seems to like this movie um it's it's junk and it's that's a shame limp finale it's desperately screaming for a sequel and when it comes to the bloody awesome movie podcast or movie astrology whatever everything i do i do it for you john but god please don't make me watch another version of this (laughs) go back to kevin costner please because this is garbage and i don't use that phrase lightly but this really is half-baked is what i put in my review it's mediocre it just doesn't feel like anybody during when they were making it i think it felt like they knew that they had a turkey on their hands but they kind of like Push through. I want to stress, I owned all of the Kevin Costner Robin Hood action figures. I had the playset. I even had this giant, like, barricade thing to, like, knock the castle wall down. Like, I was a fan of the Robin Hood movie as a kid. So I went into this film hoping that I would at least find joy in a character that I've loved since I was a child. And I did not. Um, If anything, I was just like, what have you done to a character that I love? Um, and I, I was okay with some of the choices, like to make Little John the uh, the Morgan Freeman type character from um, Prince of Thieves. I was fine with that. I could work with that. But no, it's just it's just flawed, like every step of the way. Um, and I tried to be Will Scarlet as on the on the playground at school, and some new kid came. He'd only been to school for a week, but they made him Will Scarlet. So I spent the rest of my, that my lunch break sitting in the corner in a strop. And <laughs> this Will Scarlet wasn't the one I remember trying to be like. No. But no. I liked him in this film, which is saying something. I like Will Scarlet O'Hara from Robin Hood, Prince <laughs> of Thieves. Um, but, uh, all right. Next movie, uh, another sequel, technically. Um, the Girl in the Spider's Web. Uh, far, far flung from David Fincher's take on the story. Um, here they, they try to make our beloved character into a James Bond-type uh, spy. Um, you do get Lakeith Stanfield being Lakeith Stanfield's action version, which I think would be awesome if he were a star, uh, like starring role in a film. Um, here it does feel kind of like, what? How is any of this happening? It, it's it's junk in almost every way. Um, there's some things to enjoy. There's some cool action set pieces. Claire Foy is a terrific actress, so it's not her but what they do to this character, um, even if it makes sense in terms of time that has passed since the first film, and I haven't, um, I actually just bought the uh, the trilogy books um, yesterday at a used bookstore, uh, so I'm hoping to actually read through them because I I love Fincher's version of the of the girl yeah. with the dragon tattoo, and I did not love this version, um, and that might be this that might have been the biggest flaw was I shouldn't have watched Fincher's version the night before seeing Girl with the in the Spider's Web because. Yeah, Fincher is a director who I've constantly connected with. 
Um, I've only not seen um, uh, the movie with Brad Pitt where he gets young. Uh, Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I've not seen that, and there's one other About film. seven of... hours long. Oh my god, I'm not ever going to watch that. And then there's one other film, I think, on Fincher's list that I've not seen yet. But I've seen all of his other films, and I love many of them. So um, th- that probably didn't help me going into this movie. I was too fresh and too uh, enamored by Fincher's work to appreciate this for what it was trying to do. Because I don't think it's trying to be Fincher's film either. But um, it's it's just it's just kind of junk. Um, if you want a female-led spy movie, go watch Atomic Blonde. But Yeah, I wasn't overly keen on that film, but it's a heck of a lot better than this one. I mean, like you've mentioned Fincher. I mean, he, what he bought to that film, because he's got that nuanced direction, because the girl with, with the dragon tattoo could have been, or would have been, bland and emotionless. But he brought something to it. And Daniel Craig and Rooney Mara, who are marvellous oh, actors, and yeah. she got a Academy Award nod for that film, let's not forget. Plus, this film had its budget slashed in half. So, oh. Fede Alvarez from uh, Don't Breathe, and uh, The Evil Dead, I think he did. Or... Yeah, he did. Yep. He already had a mountain to climb, but there was... I mean, the Scandinavia landscape, every time they're in a film, it looks just beautiful. But there's, again, another... Every film has this grungy, grimy filter on it, which just mm. doesn't work. Claire Foy, I thought she was okay as Lisbeth. She doesn't... She's not bad. I just didn't find her appealing in the lead role. Sylvia Hooks, she looks like a villain, but she's certainly not written like one. No. It had, I liked the opening scene of the film, literally, which again you see in the trailer, literally the very first opening gambit. I like that. Yep. But as, but as you then say, it then kind of diverges into this faux James Bond thing, which doesn't work. The, Even from the, the opening credits, man. The opening credits is... Stylized credits, yeah. Stylized like a Bond film, like in every way. Yeah. Um, the crime aspect is better than the thriller aspect. The visuals in this film look bored. I was bored watching it. It, they all like, the only good thing I can say about this film is it's better than The Snowman, which was set in the same part of Europe. And that's not saying anything, because The Snowman was one of the worst films I've seen in the last decade. But the question, again, this is Matt's movie question for John. Had Rooney Mara and Daniel Craig been foolish enough or clever enough to take the paycheck, could they have done anything to salvage this movie? I, I think, I don't blame the actors, so no. But I do think, um, one, I didn't know about the budget, and that definitely could. Two, I think the direction matters. I am not a huge fan of Eddie Alvarez. Um, I I was on the negative side of Don't Breathe. I was very much against it. I think there's some cool stuff in it. Um, I think overall as a film, there's a lot of little problems that I didn't like, especially the characters in that movie, um, which may or may not be the director's fault. But nonetheless, if Fincher was there with those two actors, maybe, maybe. But I don't think you get this script. It should be noted that there are two books before this one. This is the yes. fourth book, and the book itself was not written by the same author of the original trilogy. I so, think he only, I think he passed away after writing the first two or three. I can't remember which ones now. But, but from what, and I've not seen the original Norwegian trilogy, although it's on my list to to watch because I was so taken by Fincher's. I want to see the other <laughs> movies. But from my understanding, it progressively gets stupid in two and three. <laughs> Um, the the story and how it goes, it gets it gets really over the top ridiculous. Um, because there's man, she is so erratic in Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. Like there's this withdrawn element to her character, and then there's just so much there that's understated in, in Mara's performance, and it, that's missing here. And my, it's not necessarily missing in that Foy did it wrong. Years have passed. And so she's developed into a different person. 
that's completely reasonable, right? Like that a person would yeah, change yeah. over time, but it still it just is a much more boring character than the character we're given in that first film. And so I don't know. I don't know if Fincher would have made I mean, it could be why this Fincher's not doing this movie is because the script's just not good. Um or it could be something else. But yeah, that's that's kind of where I'm at. I don't think just the actors there would have saved it. It would need a whole lot of uh, touch-ups and, and work. Yeah, there was no for me. There was no momentum in the film. It literally it just went from set piece to set piece, and there's no urgency, no electricity in there, which really propelled the story forward. It's just boring. There were, and there were scenes which were just. I don't know what Alvarez was trying. There's a scene where there's an explosion and these car alarms are going off, and he kind of focuses on these car alarms going off and the light and the, obviously the headlights going on and off, and I think. You spend 20 seconds on this shot and it's not telling me anything. It's just saying that there was a loud explosion and it set some car alarms off. What's that? What are you trying to say? It's in a suburban area. It was just a pointless, one pointless shot in a, a smorgasbord, if you will, of pointless shots. It's just a, mm-hmm. it, just, it had no momentum. It just, it, again, it just felt half-baked to me. And after American remake, Hollywood remakes sometimes get a bad rap when they take international properties, but the girl of the dragon tattoo showed that in the right hands, you can do it. You can do it mm-hmm. just right. Some would say, let the right one in as well. Um, I would, I would. I liked that Swedish one. It's way better. The Swedish but one is better for they, sure. They honored it. Well, in the United States one, then you get things like inside of Martins, which were garbage. The U the US, the Hollywood based one. Sorry. But with the first, with the dragon tattoo, they got it very, very good. Oh, near, near spot on. This one, this year, I would again. I'm not would never sit here and say to avoid a film, but I'd say this is on your list. Maybe knock it down a few and <laughs> watch some other things first. For sure, yeah, I agree. Um, I didn't see the next film, so yeah, I'll rattle through this one. It's a Nutcracker and the Four Realms. Had two directors and a very solid-looking cast. Disney at Christmas. Surely it's going to be a winner. We've got another film coming out which John's going to mention, which is a Disney Christmas film, but um. Sometimes you can have too much sparkle and pizzazz, and that can mask a story. Uh, and it's exactly what happens here. There's no spark to the story. It's so glittery and magical. It, why wasn't it better? Basically, very quickly, um, the fact that he teaches the family in this film is the first Christmas they've had since the mother passed away. And the young daughter, Clara, who's played by Mackenzie Foy, she's given a strange egg-shaped gift by her godfather, who we'll just call Morgan Freeman, because I can't remember his name. And with his help, she's transported to a magical kingdom with four realms and she has to unite them and it all ties into a bigger family story. But the fact that the, the, the movie's main issue is it tries to be too magical. It tries to be too kind of fairy tale-esque and wondrous. And it it drops the story in favour of that and it ends up being a really boring, a bland story, which doesn't sound like Disney to me. But yeah, Mackenzie Foy, she was very good. The young actress, I thought she was really good. She's graceful and elegant. And she carried the story on her young shoulders. Uh, Jaden for Warren Knights is his debut film, I think. He was not one of the, he was a Nutcracker. He was very charming, similar to like sort of Henry Golding, how he's come along. He had that mm. charm to him. Yep. Uh, for Warren Knight had that. Kira Knightley, whoa, she's definitely having so much fun in this. She must for my for the English listeners, if you've seen Blackadder two and Miranda Richardson's Queen Elizabeth, Kira Knightley must have been watching that because she's bonkers, but she's also a very bad the character is terrible she will grate on you and Kira Knightley I mean she looks the part but he Helen Mirren Morgan Freeman are supporting characters you get to hear Morgan Freeman say Christmas Eve will be a magical night 
And if I could just hear him say that to me every Christmas Eve, <laughs> that, that would make it for me. But in a nutshell, it's got a tight runtime, like similar to the Spider's Web. There's no urgency. It all feels too pedestrian. The four realms have their own kind of individual quirks, though there might be some parts that younger kids will find a bit strange or a bit frightening, because there are some bits which, um, including some clowns, which are a bit scary. But the visuals look good. It's frustrating that the story doesn't live up to it. James Newton Howard's score isn't great. It sounds like Hedwig's theme a lot during it, which is a good theme, but it looks like he's taken too many nods from that. But overall, to me, this was just a soulless movie for what for what yeah. it should have been, but it was still better than A Wrinkle in Time. So oh. watch it for the curiosity case. It looks it looks wonderful. It's colourful. It has that magical quality to it, but it lacks the magical spark. And I was disappointed because I really wanted this to be a a really nice family Christmas film, but I was left empty by the end of it. I, I like The Wrinkle in Time. I don't think it's perfect, but I I, I was... Of course, yeah, we disagreed on that one. Yeah, yep. yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm, I need to see Nutcracker. I'm not excited about seeing it, and I do feel like I'm going to end up having similar points that you have. But it is a Christmas movie, and it is a, a Disney thing, which my th- local theater has. We get bonus Disney movie reward points if we see that... Um, Rec- or Ralph Breaks the Internet and the one that's upcoming, Mary Poppins Returns. Um, nice. So I, I need to see it just to get those bonus points. But um, yeah, so our next movie, Overlord. Um, Life was something completely different. Yeah, Completely different. And a movie that for us, I think all we needed was to have a little bit of action and to have a good time with it. And yeah. it actually surpassed that for me. Um, I was I really liked the characters. I actually cared a lot about the characters. And... Um, I found Overlord to be exactly what I wanted. It was an action-packed kind of monster-inspired World War II movie, but with really great performances from some uh, like Wyatt Russell and mm-hmm. um, I'm going to forget the lead guy's name now. Joe Vanadepo. Yeah, there it is. Um, I I was really into them. I thought the uh, the other characters were all really compelling. Um, there's some really cool action set pieces in the film, uh, and even the pacing. Like it's it's not guns blazing the whole time but there's a lot of like building of suspense and tension and i i was really into it and ended up really enjoying overlord quite a bit i thought this was going to be awful but i went to watch it on opening night over here in a fairly moderate screen there wasn't many people there oh i had such a good time uh i more than i thought unashamedly good time it did there were part of the parts towards the end i wasn't as strong for me as the rest of it but that's such a good the sound. The the introduction to this film, the oh. intro scene, is soul shaking. It and that's just a sound design. It's such a brutal, visceral intro. That's what made me sit up and think, well, hold on, maybe this isn't going to be the crap list, which I think is going to be, because I thought this was going to be a train wreck, but it wasn't. It really wasn't. And the reviews and the reaction it's getting is not. Nobody's saying this is the best film of the year or Oscar no. caliber. Yeah, yeah. But they're saying they had they they got exactly what they wanted. The kind of B movie fun but you got some characters to go with it you got some good action uh the the effects looked good and i liked the time with world war ii which i never thought i would do mm. and when the horror kicks in i to me it felt a little bit like wreck a spanish horror film there are moments oh. where that and i love that film um and that would never be a bad thing that's how they handled the tension and the scares but i had a some some they were like the monster effects and the transform they're just awesome yeah, I had a much better time than I thought I would with this. And yeah, White Russell and Giovanna Depot are fantastic in the lead. 
and Russell just proves his dad. He's got his dad's sort of tough guy genes. But mm. I had a great time with this film. It slows down a bit in the middle, but it still it still has that tension. Yeah. There's still something overhanging, and it's, well, it's, it's, it's this was a lot better than it had any right to be. I think that slowdown. If the characters are not compelling, if they're not people we care about, that slowdown fails, and the movie awesome, ends. Yeah. But because we're we're you know latched onto who these people are, and we we're with them, we understand their fears. We understand their scenario. We understand their drive to, to complete their mission um, because there's lives at stake here. It's like the stakes are clear and the movie doesn't let you forget that. And I think that keeps it going. Even when they do slow down to have kind of more character moments, um, it's it's just continues to drive forward. This was originally there was rumors that this was going to be in the Cloverfield universe um, when they announced that they were making a zombie World I War Two movie. Wasn't. I kind of wish it was only because of how bad Paradox was received or, uh, <laughs> that that maybe this could have been the salvation of the Cloverfield franchise because I love mm-hmm. 10 Cloverfield Lane. I love Cloverfield um, and I liked Overlord a whole lot. And I am one of the few who I took Paradox with great joy. Maybe it was sleep deprivation because I did stay up really late to watch it, <laughs> yeah. but and I've not rewatched it. So I have no other takes on it, um, but I liked Overlord a whole lot. And I am getting... Uh, our local theater, also the Regal Cinemas, um, if you saw Overlord, um, Nobody's Fool, Instant Family, and Bumblebee, if you see all four of those movies with your Regal card, uh, when they all come out, you'll get them all digital, digital copies of the movie. So oh, I'm, um, I'm in the wrong country. I'm excited about getting all four of these movies digitally for uh, um, because I, I loved Instant Family, and I, I have high hopes for Bumblebee, despite my better judgment. So... Um, I'm really hoping that Travis Knight can bring something excellent to the Transformer universe. So, I agree with that, and I'm, I just want to say I'm glad this wasn't part of the Clo- the Cloverfield universe because I like the first one. wasn't keen on Ten Cloverfield Lane. I think again, really? I'm in the mind, ma- massive minority there. I liked the first half of Cloverfield Paradox, and had this been Cloverlord, <laughs> that make me laugh saying <laughs> it, then they would have they would have changed the story and they would have like really tenuously connected it like they did with paradox but not cloverlord thankfully it's overlord and it worked better for me to be fair though i did see two places where they could have easily connected it to the uh the first movie um some of the things they were doing underneath the uh where they got to yes i could i can see that but um for me i'm glad they didn't but um the next two films uh john hasn't next three films i again i'll rattle through these because uh there's three film before chat First one was Cam on Netflix. Got a lot of buzz recently. I hadn't heard of it until about two weeks ago. Then I saw some buzz on social media. It's on Netflix. So I'll check that out. Had a good time with it. It follows Cam Girl, um, online camera girl who obviously performs for money online. Uh, Lola, it's played by uh, Melanie Brewer. She attempts to rise up the ranks of the Cam Girls, funded by the horny Hulk vloggers. She wakes up one day to find that her account's been hacked and a doppelganger has taken her place. And it's not perfect. It's not excellent. But it's a very good pseudo horror movie, kind of asking these questions about, you know, that need for adoration amongst the faceless online, and it's it's also adept at showing how easily you can be manipulated if, if you give people what they desire. Some of the people who are the pay, the baying paying customers are uh, just as you'd imagine. If you've got a young woman on screen, you can imagine the types of people who are commenting and trying to watch it. But there's an Madeline Brewer, sorry, not Melly. Madeline Brewer is fantastic leading this film. She's marvelous. She was, I think, she's in The Handmaiden's Tale. She was. Um, oh, sorry, I was just going to ask how uh, how hard R is this? Is this like a really? No, no. I think most of the fear 
is in the what if or the ideas rather than what you see. It's kind of it takes the fear of having your identity and everything about yourself online taken away in, into somebody else's hands, and it plays out better than that on screen. But it, yeah, the fear is more from the idea than what you see on screen. But she's fantastic, Madeline Brewer, in both of her uh, alter egos. Patch Darrow and Michael Dempsey are pure slime in their roles as the adoring rich benefactors. It's lovely to see Samantha Robinson in there as well. She was in The Love Witch from 2017, which for me, she's in my top uh, 10, 15 actresses of that year, just for that film. She was ma- ma- marvellous. But yeah, the, the narrative mystery are compelling. Good writing. The ending was okay. It wasn't satisfying enough given what came before, but in different hands, this could have been sleazy and schlocky. But Daniel Goldharbour, who's a new director, he kept everything in check. And Cam is getting a lot of buzz online, and I'd recommend yourself, John, and the listeners checking it out. So Cam on Netflix. Nice. Next up, Outlaw King. Sound the klaxon, because Chris Pine's got a Scottish accent. And, and it's not all bad, actually. But this one's about Robert the Bruce and his rebellion to take back Scotland from those awful beasts from England. Um, Head or High Water director David McKenzie uh, is at the helm of this one. And Chris Pine, he doesn't get the blood pumping like Mel Gibson did in Braveheart, but he's still very good, actually. He's surprisingly good with his Scottish accent as well. When this film isn't trying to be Braveheart, it's kind of like a nice cousin or follow-up to Braveheart. Um, mm. Florence Pugh, who was magnificent, again, in... Lady Macbeth, which was my, I think, number two film of last year, and she is magnificent, and she's got some big films coming up. She's fabulous in this. Aaron Taylor-Johnson is <laughs> wired in this film. He is on something. He's crazy, but he's also very unexpectedly very good. But uh, if you want to know more about the history of the characters, go on Google, because you don't get an awful lot of backstory to them. Scotland looks stunning. It's never looked as good as it has before. There's kind of like Middle-earth landscape, wide shots are captured. The mountains, the countryside... Everything, it just looks majestic. The action scenes are brutal and well shot. It doesn't hit the epic status that it really strives for. But I mentioned in my closing line of my review for a Netflix film, because this is a Netflix-funded film, Outlaw King is excellent. As a Netflix film, fantastic. As a movie, it's extremely good still. But as a, for a Netflix film, this is very, very good. And I know it's getting mixed reviews, but I thought this was a very good... Uh, period movie. Not It's not Braveheart level, but it isn't trying to be. It's telling a different story, which is loosely connected to it. It's not a sequel, but it follows the same events. But um, yeah, again, Outlaw King, well worth a try. And Chris Pine looks the part and surprisingly has a fairly decent Scottish accent and he gets naked in it as well, if you're interested. Ooh. So that one, uh, Outlaw King, check it out. And, and the final one, sorry, sorry, John. No, it's, it's the one that I desperately wanted to see and was unable to make it to the, the theater that closest to me was like a 45-minute drive, and I was not able to get to it. And so now it seems to be out of theaters around me, and I'm just going to have to wait till it comes out on video uh, to see it. But it is, Matt, go ahead. It is Suspiria, the remake of the 1970, 1978 movie Suspiria. I found it hard to find a screen. You know, There's plenty in London nearby, but in my local area, there was only a couple. Uh, and the only one that had it was the mainstream uh, cinema Cineworld which surprised me because we do have some independent theatres which I thought would have carried this film and they didn't but I managed to see it interesting enough there's only five other, five other people in the screen and they were all by themselves as well I took the day off and I went to see this film I went by myself 
everybody else was in there by themselves. And they too looked like the kind of people who were going to study this to write about it or speak about it on a podcast somewhat. But um, <laughs> Susp- this, this Suspiria, again, I, I could go on for hours, but I won't. It doesn't try to replicate the original, which was just wacky, bizarre. And obviously everybody remembers the OTT colours and the sharp angles that define that look. This one's a lot more muted. It's a lot grimier. You've got Tom York's yearnings, pulsating score, rather than Goblin's kind of uh, creepy folk score. The all-female cast, apart from a couple of guys in it for about 30, not 30 seconds, the all-female cast are magnetic. They're captivating. Dakota Johnson isn't miscast. Her wide-eyed naivety as Susie adds to the suspense and the intrigue as she's just thrust into the macabre happening. She trained for two years for the dance scenes in the shows because they're, they are... Uh, br- brutally uh, animalistic. They're really, they've got this rough edge to them and they're so good. Tilda Swinton plays three characters, including one of the men in this film. The only prevalent male is actually played by a female, which I didn't know till I left. And her, Madame Blanc, is a, she's got this threatening presence whenever she's on screen. Mia Goth, or Maya Goth, she's excellent. I really like her and I liked her in A Cure for Wellness as well. She provides the audience with the character that they can follow. She's the kind of She's the relatable character in the film, but across the board, the characters are brilliant. And this didn't feel like a film that had female characters in it, just to say, hey, look how progressive we are, guys. Come and jump on the film for this. It it was it worked for the story. That's what it needed. Uh, I wasn't a massive fan of the structure that uh, Gord and Nino put in place. It's a bit too long, about 10, 15 minutes too long for me. Hmm. There's a lot of horrifying images in this film. A lot of it is... There's a lot of things in this film which people will be turned off by and won't like because it does go quite deep in its use of you know, visceral imagery and gore. And most of it works. That's not coming from somebody who loves that kind of stuff, but it works. Some dodgy CGI is in there, but the lighting tries to cover that. There's a menacing atmosphere. There's some mind-bendedly bizarre montages. There's nasty horror films. Unsettling tones throughout, even when it does drag because there are parts of this which really do drag and they could have been taken out. It reminded me of Black Swan because of the dancing, mm. and it had, um, which also had felt like Suspiria and Mother as well for that weirdness uh, of it. I but love this, Mother. I prefer Suspiria to Mother, but I did also quite enjoy Mother a lot. But this is a beautiful slow movie. It's a surprising and bloody film, but there are. It's not going to work for everybody. It's a lovely rumination of the power that women possess. Is it as good as the original? I'm not going to say yes or no because it's in a film as weird. And strange as these two, you have to experience it for yourself. Um, so I'm not going to be drawn on that, though I do have my opinion. But it doesn't attempt to be that film. So it's not for everyone. If you can remain patient with the runtime, you're going to love this film come the end of it. But if you do find yourself flagging, by the time the end comes, you may be, you may already have your head out the door. But for me, upon thinking more and more about it, I think this film is fabulous. But uh, yeah, if you do get a chance to check it out when it comes out on digital. It's not going to be for everyone, but I enjoyed it. I definitely will. I, I'm not a fan of the original. Um, I mm-hmm. feel like I just don't get what everyone else is a fan of with the original, and I want to understand, because I don't like watching a film that's generally loved by many and feeling like the outsider not getting it, because it makes me yeah. feel maybe stupid or like maybe not as uh, refined. Or you know, I'm wondering what's wrong with me that it doesn't work. Um, so I'm hoping I like this one just to be more of a contrarian about it, but... Um, next up is The Grinch, where I am the contrarian. Uh, let me clarify. Mm-hmm. Dr. Seuss's The Grinch. I love this movie. 
I had um, I love the take on the the story. I am a fan of both the Ron Howard, uh, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and the classic cartoon. Um, I liked the the premise, but I really liked um, the way they because both the Ron Howard film and this film have to flesh out a thirty minute story into a two hour long movie. Or this yeah. I think is only an hour and a half. Which so right away you have to decide what backstory are we going to go with? How are we going to make a bigger world than just him stealing Christmas Eve? You know. Um, why is he stealing Christmas Eve becomes a big part of these these movies and I prefer how they went with this one now I do think Ron Howard's is more fun um, and again it's Jim Carrey in a fursuit instead of the leotard like we mentioned with Batman uh, forever which I guess that was off air I, I think when we had that conversation it but, was, yeah. um, but uh, Jim Carrey's being Jim Carrey in a fursuit in in that Grinch here you get um I felt like a very nuanced telling of the Grinch and, and why he was the way he was. And um, honestly, for an Illumination movie as well, I thought this was really toned down for the most part, um, except for the Screaming Goat. I think that's where they got their, their trademark loud. Like if you watch like Secret Life of Pets or The Minions, it's just a lot of like in-your-face loud erratic things. Um, I also want to uh, – there's co-directors here, but Scott Mosier is one of them. And Scott Mosier is Kevin Smith's producer going all the way back to Clerks. Oh, wow. um, and so I have that connection. So maybe that is where a bias comes in because I am a huge fan of the original Kevin Smith films um, that Mosier is a part of. And I am proud to see him getting to direct. And this is a big movie to get to start your directing career on. Um, and I thought they did a really solid job. I also thought it looked awesome. I loved the design of Whoville and the animation I thought was really strong. I had a good time with this, uh, even more so than my wife, which she also went to this one with me. Um, I, I like this one more than she did. Uh, but I found the character to be introspective and uh, have the internal conflict of the film to take center place. And in a kid's animated film, that's rare. And I think I appreciated that maybe too much. And that's what made me kind of high on this film. But I know uh, most other people are not loving this movie. Um, although I don't think most people are hating it either. It's just kind of like lukewarm reactions to it but what was your thought matt yeah mine was i was i'm on the lukewarm train i've never been a massive fan of the cinematic franchise i don't mean a couple of films but i like dr zeus and i like the stories everybody knows the stories and the, the grinch and green eggs and matt everybody knows them but i just wasn't i wasn't overly sold by this film i didn't hate it absolutely not i, I it kept my attention which is always a good thing but because like you mentioned it's less rowdy than jim carrey's version yeah. And this is absolutely aimed at the family Christmas market, which it should be. And it, you know, it, it, there's no reason why it shouldn't be. I'm not. I don't really. I'm not really up for seeing a, you know, an R-rated version of The Grinch. I'm sure some people would love it, but it's for the kids, and that's nothing wrong with that. And I'm, I will show it to my daughter when she's a couple of years older, to when she actually gets it. Um, but it's an inoffensive film. The gags are all visual. The message of family and love over the material needs is it's a lovely message. It permeates the whole film. Um, but it didn't give me the Christmas feels like I wanted it to. It would give the kids are going to love it. And that isn't a slight on the film because I know a lot of adults love it. Um, but it just didn't give me those feels. And we've spoken off air about this, but Benedict Cumberbatch, first he's got the most English name I've ever heard. And he's also exceedingly British. So why not? Why give him the American accent? It works as Dr. Yeah. Strange. He can cut it kind of, he pulls that off, but why not either just cast an American actor or have him speak British? As you mentioned, it's not yeah. that that's a bad thing. Cause I liked him as such. I actually liked him here. I thought he worked even with the accent. I just thought it was a strange choice. But, yeah, it looked good. It wasn't as textured as a Pixar movie in terms of animation. Still looked good. 
still some good detail there. It's bursting with colours, you'd imagine. But uh, I know, obviously, you saw the the deeper sides to it, but uh, it just didn't grab me like I hoped it would. Because I really wanted to sit there and just be have that yeah those those festive feels. But it it just didn't get me. I didn't hate the film. But it's just it just passed me by. Yeah, no, and I, I get that. Um, and I I'm I clearly am in the minority with the the amount of love that I'm having for it. Um, but I, I genuinely did. I, I, I'm definitely going to buy this and add it to my collection. I am a film collector, first of all. So I buy a lot of stuff that's only mediocre anyways, but, um, and we own basically every Christmas movie that's worth owning. Um, I did that a few years ago cause my wife is a huge Christmas fanatic. Like we've had our tree up since, uh, before our last episode. Yeah. She loves the Hallmark movies, <laughs> but, um, we do own like the, every staple like Christmas film, including like Scrooge that I have on Blu-ray. Like, I mean, I have the the gambit so this movie will be added um i even have the animated version of elf which is not very good uh but well yeah i'm saying i i have the collection when it comes to the christmas films um and i am a i'm a purist man i love my favorite christmas films it's a wonderful life and white christmas are like two of my absolute all-time favorites but i also love elf and i love uh polar express even though i have some issues with the animation i do love the santa claus not the second or third those suck but the first one's amazing, and I think it's Tim Allen's best performance. I also think that's the best uh, cinematic-looking Santa Claus, is the Tim yes. Allen Santa Claus. We watch that every year on Christmas. Christmas night, we usually watch it, even though Father Christmas is Santa Claus has already been and done his work. We still watch it Christmas night. Yeah, man, I'm all for that. Um, I love I love the Christmas season. Uh, I'm having a hard time balancing watching Christmas movies right now with movies I haven't seen. Um, like I feel like this obligation to watch new stuff. And not just like revisit things that I've seen a million times, but I'm also I'm itching for several of the the holiday films. I'm I'm really itching for White Christmas right now because uh, there are some songs in that film that just I adore so much, and um, I also I cry a lot at White Christmas, and it's a wonderful life. It's a wonderful life. Not only is it one of my favorite Christmas films, it's in my top like fifty movies of all time. Like I it's love that movie. Um, it makes me want to go back and watch it now also it's mentioned in the exist i'm actually going to go and watch that and the exist three but um i love that film it's one i'm going to be watching christmas eve but you've just mentioned christmas films and i'm kind of jumping ahead here but there is a there is a christmas film that was released this this month which i haven't seen but you have uh, on netflix let's go to that one uh the christmas chronicles um i gotta say when we talk about wyatt russell kurt russell I, i i don't know if i said this to you but i said this to somebody to me uh Kurt Russell's take on Santa Claus is if um, Big Trouble in Little China met a Christmas movie and <laughs> that it works for me because I love Big Trouble in Little China and his take on Santa Claus is this cool like badass guy and it worked for me. Um, the movie is not perfect but it's fun. Um, I did find the young girl character to be like driving me insane like just oh, really – hard to get past some of her like nuance uh or her little idiosyncratic idiosyncrasies um but my wife enjoyed it um she put it on kind of apprehensively but i'll tell you no matter how you feel about christmas movies if you are a fan of kurt russell you will at least find some joy in this movie because he is terrific and he's having a blast like you said with ben mendelson and robin hood kurt russell wanted to be santa claus like you can tell (laughs) he wanted to do this and that makes all the more wild because he's having i haven't seen him have this kind of fun for a long time like it it reminds me of like big trouble little china 
um, where he's just in this character. Uh, he's Jack Burton, and he is here to save Christmas kind of thing, you know? Um, and it works. And the uh, the older brother is in The Summer of 84, which is a film that I, I despise. I still need to see. Um, yes. Uh, and he's good. Um, and, you know, there's, there's some cliche stuff in this movie uh, for sure. They do some interesting stuff with the lore of Santa Claus that I think – um, I there's one thing that they allude to and they don't say and I really wish they would have said it but you know they 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 address a lot of the uh the things that people use to to discredit Santa Claus they bring those up and kind of like no no here's how here's why this is what how he's able to do these things that people think you can't do because he's freaking Santa Claus you know um it's definitely uh it's a fun Christmas movie and I think I can see rewatching it every year for sure um a, a, just for Kurt Russell's performance. I still think uh, Tim Allen's the best. The costuming of that Santa Claus is what I think of when I think of Santa Claus now. Um, I don't think that's what you're getting here. But if you want, if you ask me, like, what's a cool version of Santa Claus? What's the Marvel Universe version of Santa Claus? <laughs> yeah. It's this one uh, for sure. I haven't seen it. We're going to watch it um, in the weeks leading up to Christmas. I suppose we are now, but within the next two weeks, we're going to sit down and watch it as we get closer to Christmas. But Similar to Overlord, not this film, blimey, how it plays out, but what people wanted from this film is what I've heard a lot of people saying. Again, I don't try not to read reviews, but you can't help seeing top-line reactions. But I've seen that a lot of people are pretty pleased with this film. They're saying, you know, it's a good fun. For the most part, the comedy is pretty good. I've seen a few people say the kids are quite good. Some say maybe not as good. But for the most part, across the board, most people are saying it's a pretty decent film. Certainly a pretty decent Christmas film. Yeah, and I do want to point out, I didn't say the girl did bad. Um, it's just grating. grating, yeah. And that could be what the character is supposed to be, or it could be like just me and like little kids often are grating, you know. Um, but uh, I, I don't think she's doing a bad job. It's just I think the character is a little obnoxious. But again, maybe that's what they were wanting, or maybe that's just my personal reaction to this character, and it has nothing to do with anything other than that. But. Um, and it still, it didn't take me, it didn't ruin the movie for me. I still had a good time watching it. Um, the plot's straightforward, but I mean, it's a Christmas movie. I'm not looking for revolutionary plot design here. Uh, I just need it to, to, like you said, when you watch The Grinch, I want to be, I want to feel festive. I want to feel, um, a little bit of joy. I want to feel a little bit of hope, you know, that like, no matter how bad things get, we can always be better. And that Christmas is that time where we're inspired to be better. And I think the movie executes there. And again, it gives there's a there's a sequence where Santa gets to sing, and I won't say why or what or how, but it's man, it's so Kurt Russell and it's so terrific. Um, I just I if you like Kurt Russell, I'm telling you that's it. It's that's the key factor here. Do you like Kurt Russell? Yes or no? And if yes, watch this movie because you're gonna love Kurt Russell in this film. That was my I'm take on it. I'm sold now. So John doesn't like child actors sometimes, and he certainly doesn't like horses either. So mm. two of John's movie kryptonite there, but. Um, for a uh, typically non-Christmas film is The Possession of Hannah Grace now I, I saw that um, on opening day not because I was so excited to see it but because I had the day off and I wanted to go and spend some time <laughs> but I was interested in this film I'm not going to lie I caught the trailer ahead of Suspiria I knew nothing about this film at, at the time I didn't I saw the trailer and thought now that looks like it could either be incredible or incredibly bad, bad. it turns out it's kind of more on the bad side, but I it's getting slammed by a lot of people. I didn't mind it too much, but it was it used to be called Cadaver, 
Now, I have, as I mentioned before, I've got a massive spreadsheet of all the films that come out each month. And I had a film called Cadaver on this list, and then I, and it kind of disappeared. So I deleted it. And now it's come back and it'd be re, re, it's been rebranded as The Possession of Hannah Grace. So I was aware of it under its Cadaver moniker. Um, basically, it, this is a low-budget supernatural horror thriller. It, like I said, it came with little fanfare, which can work sometimes, especially with horror films. Lots of horror films kind of come out of nowhere and seem to, and they can make money back. Yeah, very quickly, it's about a police woman, former policewoman rehab patient played by Shane Mitchell. She takes a graveyard shift at a morgue. Of course, it's got a high turnover of staff because people think they're hearing things go bump in the night. One night, horribly maimed corpse arrive and things start to go bump in the night because something evil is coming from that cadaver. If that sounds an awful lot like the autopsy of Jane Doe, you'd be forgiven for thinking that, but Hannah Grace doesn't have the same tension or mystery or quality surrounding the story. The autopsy of Jane Doe took me by surprise a year or two ago by how damn good that film was and how effective it was. The intro to this scene was excellent. I like me an exorcism scene, but I loved. I thought this was a brilliant setup, and that's when I, again with Overlord, I sat up and thought maybe this film could be quite good because I didn't. I didn't know anything about it because there were no reviews out before. There must have been an embargo by Sony who said, "Look, don't we don't want any reviews out because there was nothing about this film to say whether good or bad." So I had no expectations. The intro made me think this could be brilliant, and then it kind of it moves along at a nice pace and. The annoying thing, frustratingly, the further it goes on at that nice pace, any fear and mystery crumbles away because the cliches get thrown in. And that's the problem because there's so much potential here for a really chill and effective horror movie. But there were good set pieces in this film, which were good and they were creepy. But when those cliches came in, it just derailed it and it just sent it into mediocrity. The sound design was one of those ones where you can't just have a jump scare you've got to have a massive bass, bass drum drop to, to, to really let you know that this is, this is a jump scare, guys. We oh, need man. to jump out of a seat. And Shay Mitchell's good in the, in the lead as Megan. She's the highlight of the film. She, she actually has a fairly uh, unpanicked, grounded performance. And the rest of the cast are just there. They just turn up, they put on their outfits and their costumes, and they're there. That's about it, really. Kirby Johnson, what a fantastic name. She's play, she plays the titular character Hannah Grace I liked her I thought visually she looked good in terms of the what they how she's presented and actually her her actual aesthetic out of costume is pleasing she has she's a model as well so she has a kind of angular model looks to her uh, sharp looks and it really works well for this character but I had fairly high hopes not that it is going to be brilliant but that it could be better than it was for me it's middle of the road for a lot of people, it's a lot less than that. It's a hell of a lot better than Truth or Dare, Slender Man or Winchester. So it's a win for me. But <laughs> I had hoped for more. So in terms of the films for me that, that this month, I'm ending on a kind of middle-of-the-road mediocre horror slog. But um, I know John's seen a couple more, which were yeah. probably a lot better than this. I, yeah, and I'm going to kind of power through these. I'm not going to go into quite as much, uh, just because we are running a little long on the podcast. We don't want to... We don't want to talk your ears off, but mm. um, I do want to give uh, some notes on a few of these films. So uh, new on Netflix is the newest Coen Brother film that's an, uh, an anthology film. So there's six short films all tied together, mainly through the Old West. Um, I just watched that today, in fact, and I am a huge Coen Brother fan, and that needs to be noted. And uh, I, I had a great time with these. Um, not all of them are fun times. There are some that are a little darker. Uh, they always have that dark edge, but some are... You, you kind of get a little bit of the Coen's 
filmography almost in this uh, set where you'll get your Oh Brother, Where Art Thou, a little over the top, a little zany. Then you'll get your uh, No Country for Old Men, you know, that really dark and gritty, uh, nobody wins type of story. Um, you kind of get the whole gambit of their style uh, in these six shorts, and I love that. Um, I did have a revelation while watching it. They've never worked with John C. Riley, and I don't get it because I think they would go perfectly together. Mm-hmm. Um, because Riley is really good at that sympathy and that kind of dim-witted comedic tone. Like I, I just think he would fit into their movies so well, and um, you know, because he also he does bring that gravitas that a lot of other comedic actors can't. Um, that he's a legit, genuine, dra- dramatic actor on top of the comedy. Um, and I would like to see that. Um, but I definitely recommend Ballad of Buster Scruggs if you're a fan of the Coens. Um, if you're a fan of Westerns, which right now Red Dead Redemption 2 is the rave of the video game community. So if you're hooked on that game like I am myself, this is the perfect film for right now. Because there are little things in this mo- in these movies that I was like, man, this is like Red Dead. This is like Red Dead. So uh, again, totally uh, good timing, I think, on that part. Uh, I watched a documentary called Maria by Callis, um, which I realized by watching this that I hate opera singing um, with a <laughs> strong passion. Um, and again, I think if you like uh, opera singing, you're going to love this documentary. It's two hours long. And if you cut out the opera performances, it'd probably be an hour and a half and a much better movie, in my opinion, because I do find the personal story of Maria Callis to be compelling but it's inner it's broken up through opera and maybe there's like a connection between the song she's singing and the story that's being told i didn't get it i was just annoyed by the opera um so i only i i gave it a decent watch rating so middle of the road for me um instant family was the surprise of november i went in hoping just to have a good laugh at mark Wahlberg and rose burns film um and i ended up absolutely loving it not only did i laugh i cried my daughter cried. We both laughed. Um, it's just a really great uh, everybody can love it type of movie um, that deals with a real topic. It is based on a true story. Um, I can't stress enough how much I liked Instant Family. I could see people not liking it. Um, I think Wahlberg's kind of playing a fish out of water on his persona um, in a lot of ways. That works really well for the comedy here. Mm-hmm. And there's a Interesting. really strong supporting cast of comedic actors a lot of actual comedians um but you get octavia spencer tig notaro uh elizabeth uh i'm sorry eliza challenger i cannot say her name to save my life um uh oh man um i can't think of the actress's name but there's an actress who is a great character actress she plays a mom character in so many movies including in uh the 2015 hollers uh the um oh my god uh, the john krasinski led film and directed film uh, she plays the mom in that movie. I can't think of the actress's name, but she's terrific in this as well. Um, and Elizabeth Moner, or Monaire, who if you saw uh, Sicario Day of the Soldado this yes. year, um, she's in that as well. And she's in the upcoming live-action Dora the Explorer movie as Dora the Explorer. Uh, she is a terrific actress, and I think we're going to see a lot more from her, and she's really good in, in Instant Family. Um, plus, there is a cameo that I won't say, because I, I, it's still blows my mind that it even happens but the cameo that occurs in instant family for film film fans i think you will will just get a blast out of it it made me laugh awesome. so hard. um i i really really liked it a lot uh for that reason too um can you ever forgive me is the melissa mccarthy and um robert e grant film that is terrific it is based richard on richard e grant richard e grant sorry um 
based on uh, the true life story of um, oh man, I just had it, and then when I messed up his name, I forgot her name. Lee Israel, um, who is an author. Uh, she mainly wrote biographies, and then when tr- times got tough, uh, she started forging letters and selling them to pay the rent. And um, my God, the performances by both uh, Grant and McCarthy are Oscar worthy for sure. Um, I don't know if they'll both get nominated, but both are deserving. It's a really great movie. It's a, a gritty biopic, but not it's like not forgiving. And it's also not uh, punishing. Like it's just it just feels real. And in every way, like they, they're, I don't know. It was, it was a huge surprise. Um, really, really liked it. It's the same director who did Diary of a Teenage Girl a couple years ago. Um, which, Mario Hello, I think. Yeah, and I love that movie. Uh, this is very different stylistically. Um, partly just because the story lent itself to be a little more inventive in the teenage girl, like because of the the nature of the story. Uh, but this one, man, it's just really well made and executed. We don't get this till February the first next year, but I've wow. heard that I've just I've heard that Richard E. Grant is a near shoe in for an Oscar nomination for this, and I'm so excited. Me too, and I am a fan of Hudson Hawk, in ah, which he plays the villain. You know. So <laughs> I look forward to him being wasted in Star Wars Episode Nine as well. Oh man! Oh, I I'm hope... looking forward to that ridiculously. But well, uh, I got two more. Uh, one I can talk about, and one I can't. Beautiful boy. Which I've seen, I can't believe that was this month, but I saw it at the like the very beginning of the month. Um, that's the Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet film. Uh, very very tough watch um, as it deals with uh, drug addiction and the effects that a uh, person's addiction can have on himself and his family. It's very very tough. Um, I am an advocate for Steve Carell as a dramatic actor. I mm-hmm. tend to like him more that way than I do as a comedic actor. Um, I feel like his comedic performance can be summed up as loud and stupid and daft yeah yeah and um uh, that works in certain situations like i really thought it worked great in anchorman um but even it took a while for michael scott to win me over on the office um and that's saying something because i'm a big fan of the office but uh michael scott was always the thing that kind of kept me at an arm's length for a while um but as a dramatic actor i tend to really enjoy uh carell's performances and i do like it here um this is also based on a true story it's very, very tough, and it's not a movie I want to rewatch. Um, both Chalamet and, and Carell give it their all, but um, there was it did feel like something was missing, and I can't quite put my finger on it, but uh, it wasn't quite as, as good as I had anticipated, given the caliber of talent in the film. Saw the trailer in front of Creed 2. We get this in, in the second week of January, and I've heard so much about it, but I'm looking forward to seeing the trailer. The trailer worked for me, but interested to hear what you've, how you've just said it compared to what I've heard um, the, the rest of the world seemingly sad about it, so I trust your viewpoint. And the last movie that I saw uh, was a was Lucky, and thanks to uh, Big Tuna for having me as his guest because he is at UCF um, for film right now, and so being in Orlando, he has a lot of access to some big theaters, and he's getting a lot of critic screenings. Something that I've been very apprehensive to ask for because I know I can't go to all of them, and I don't want to like have to say no after like, hey, can I have screening invites? And they're like. <laughs> Yeah, here you go. I'm like, oh, I can't go. I don't want to do that, so I don't want to burn that bridge. So I, I tend to not ask um, too often. And so uh, I got lucky, though, and got to go see Mary Poppins Returns. Nice. Now, I can't say if it's good or bad. Um, I am allowed to say it like, in, in fragments on social media. So if you want to follow me on social media, you can maybe see something there. 
but really you're you're gonna have to wait till the 12th of december when the embargo is lifted and i can give my full review of the film but i did get to see it and i definitely wanted to mention it um take take a look at burkreviews.com on the 12th if you want to know my thoughts on mary poppins returns we're legit now we've got an embargo review on the podcast that's it um yeah but mary poppins returns i'm stoked for that film is getting massively pushed over here in the united kingdom it really is getting pushed so i would be looking forward to it anyway but um again i have i've only been privy to the snippet on social media i get no preferential treatment as it should be but i'm even more excited um just because of the marketing push it's been getting so can't wait to see that yeah i've been i'm now kind of wanting to buy the original i haven't seen the original in years but it was one of my favorites as a kid i might revisit it before I, I wish I had, um, cause there's, you, there's, uh, I can't talk about it, but I, I wish I had revisited, <laughs> um, beforehand. I, I do want to buy the original, um, at some point in the near future though, cause my daughter has not seen the original. So I might have to, uh, and that's not on me. I, I know it sounds like bad parenting, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> somehow, somehow or another, she just, that's one we didn't get to. We've watched a lot of the other staples and I'm not sure why Mary Poppins wasn't there, um, Maybe just because I didn't own it, because Disney, you know, their whole vault thing where they lock up their movies, um, and it, yeah, it felt like that one wasn't on TV much as when she was a kid. Like I feel like when I was a kid, it was constantly on regular TV. It's always on, yeah. And I don't remember ever seeing it like running, even on Disney Channel here in the states when my kid was a kid. Um, so I'm hoping I can convince her to watch it before the official release of Returns, so um, she'll want to see Returns, but. It gets played a lot on over the Christmas period over here on on our channel. So, uh, yeah, same to you. I mean, we're only a few years apart. So it used to get paid a lot when I was a child. And I remember watching it as a kid. And at the time, I can't remember what I thought about at the time. But I look back on it now thinking, with fond memories because it reminds me of those times and Christmas. So, um, yeah, I'm going to check it out before I go to watch Mary Poppins Returns. And I hope it's as good as I want it to be i'll be happy if it's just very good all right folks that is the month of november we will be back with another episode of bloody awesome movie podcast at the end of december uh to look back at all the films released including mary poppins returns uh which comes out for both of us in december um and anything else that we decide we want to discuss uh we got a few big things coming out on netflix roma dumpling and bird box all three major netflix originals um coming out in december plus uh bumblebee um, Aquaman, Mortal and... Engines, uh, Holmes yeah. and Watson. Oh, Holmes and Watson! I'm excited about and the uh, Stan and Ollie, which also stars John C. Riley, which I didn't realize. Steve Coogan as well, yeah. Oh, it's Coogan as well. Oh Coogan man, Coogan as well. So I am in on that. I, I hadn't seen a trailer for it yet. I just realized it was John C. Riley. So he's got two big buddy Steve comedies Coogan, coming yeah. out. Um, so December could be a great month. It could be. It could, will it be as good as this month? We'll we'll find out. Yeah, and overall, I think November, solid month. Not perfect, uh, but it's been worse. I'll say that for sure. Yeah, there were quite a few turkeys, and hopefully there'll be some Christmas turkeys. Haha. <laughs> but there was, again, when it was good, it was good. When it was bad, it wasn't awful, I don't think. Yeah, I'd say a lot of the really bad movies were earlier this year. With the, I mean, Slender Man was August, but winchester was like what february or march or something uh, february like march time yeah and that that's still i think the the stinker of the year um so you know for the most part it's been a, a, a decent year but of course after december we'll we'll kind of look back we only didn't do january we started this in february so we've done every month but january but yeah. we'll still do like a retrospective i think little snippet at the end of our december episode 
what was the yeah, best or month? Maybe a, or maybe a special, a special or a special episode. condensed episode where we just talk about the best or worst year. Yeah, because I think I think we need to look back at the year, um, especially with Oscar season and uh, BAFTAs coming up yes. soon. Don't forget the BAFTAs. So I won't, man. Do. I, I can't, dude. Not on Bloody Awesome. How, I would be right. disrespecting my partner here. Yeah, but they're, they're just as uh, good as the Oscars. <clears throat> <laughs> oh well they're, they're, they're prestigious over here yes kind of. well let's say um if people want to find you on the internet matt where can they go they could find all of the works we do at what i watch tonight.co.uk that's written and spoken um online social media to search what i watch tonight and you'll find me and all the podcasts to do including movie astrology with john anywhere you can find podcasts um so check me out there and i am at burkreviews.com b-e-r-k reviews.com and I have the BurkeReviews.com movie cast, which include our top five movies and our movie club that uh, I am slowly picking away at my gap list, uh, about 52 <laughs> movies a year, um, which that's a big milestone for Corey and I. We just did episode 99 uh, Friday night, and that means it dropped uh, today, in fact, and we're, we're right at episode 100 of movie that's club. Incredible. So we've been doing this for almost two full years now, and it's... Uh, it's crazy when you think, because that means I've seen not quite 102 movies that I had not seen, because some of them I have seen and Corey hasn't, but a lot of them I've never seen. So I've seen some it's big a hell movies. Of an achievement. It's something, you know, we set out to do that, and it's been a heck of a lot of fun um, and work, of course, because these things do take time out of our lives to uh, to schedule, make sure you fit them all in. Um, and uh, But you can follow us on any anywhere you get your podcast, like Matt's, um, and... That's it for this episode. So until next time, keep it bloody awesome and keep watching movies. Blood, 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 bloody, blood, 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 bloody, blood, 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 bloody.